Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is part five of our ongoing Batman on Film series as we reach 1995's Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, directed by the singular Joel Schumacher. Mm. Um, It's a movie, Sean. Let's be honest. This is what all you fuckers wanted us to get to, because this is the point where we suffer for you. Yeah, it's been a while since we did, um, like, let's watch a bad movie and talk about it on the podcast. I think the last time, and and I thought about this a lot while watching Batman Forever, the last time we did that, Jonathan, was watching G-Savior together. Um, (laughs) Another, I guess that movie was technically made in 2000, but that is a 90s-ass 90s movie. Batman Forever is a 90s-ass 90s movie, and I was like, oh, God. Yeah, there is. Bad 90s movies are like a particular, there's a particular stench to them um, that I'm not. I agree. No, there is, I think 95 ish to 2000 ish is one of the single worst periods in Hollywood cinema history. And like bad movies from that window are bad in a way few movies are bad. And Batman Forever is fucking bad. Yeah, it's uh, and it was interesting. I didn't know how I'd feel about it because I haven't seen that movie since I was like eight, watching it on a VHS tape. So Me I too. went in with like no real preconceived notions, being like, you know, there's a chance that it was better than like people talk about it being. And no, it's as bad, if not probably worse, than I feel like people actually generally regard it as. Oh, it's worse because Batman Forever yeah. gets a pass from a lot of people, um, because they liked the soundtrack back in the day that had nothing to do with the movie, and they and it was a hit. And it's nostalgic, but, like, a lot of that hate gets pushed off to Batman and Robin, which I will come out and say, like, I I haven't watched it again yet, but in my mind, I've always liked Batman and Robin more than Forever. Forever is the one I fucking hate, and Batman and Robin I kind of enjoy on a certain level because it's so out there. Um, But Batman Forever is the nadir of this fucking thing. It is awful in a lot of particular ways. Uh, But it's going to be fascinating to talk about. I'm really excited to do this podcast. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, and if you guys didn't uh, listen to the end of our last Batman on Film podcast, we've kind of expanded the schedule. We are also going to be adding two direct-to-video features because they are... One of them is Under the Red Hood, which we just realized we bring up in every fucking Batman discussion, so we might as well talk about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of them is Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, which, as you explained, has enough continuity with, like, Mask of the Phantasm and kind of the direction of the animated franchise that it's worth discussing. Um, yeah. so and those, it's just good and you haven't seen it, so... Yes. So those will all be in place. And then I have also decided that we are adding, uh, but not watching them again, 
Batman v Superman and Justice League, and I will be using our old podcasts on those uh, and re-editing them a little bit, and those will be in the in the feed too. So if you've heard them, those will be recycled when we get there. But I really like those podcast discussions, and I think for posterity's sake, I just want them in the lineup. So I've put the whole schedule out on Twitter, and I probably will again. But uh, there's going to be a lot of Batman over the next year of this podcast. Yeah, you know, it turns out when the idea of the podcast was to do this until the Robert Pattinson movie came out, and then who knows when new movies ever come out, we have a lot of room to do as much Batman as we want. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so yes, before we get to Batman Forever, though, Sean, how have you been? How's life? You know, it's the, the life continues to be uh, a hell of a thing. You know, I've had it the last, you know... When we did the last podcast, I was like, man, I had this crazy week where something weird and crazy happened every day. That has basically continued, although all the stuff that's happened is like not really stuff that I would want to talk about on the podcast. But it's like work stuff is crazy. Um, and th the one I do want to talk about, because it is maybe the silliest of them all, was I don't know if, if listeners have wondered or not about, you know, with my being a teacher, what is going on with vaccines, if I am vaccinated, if I'm in the line to be vaccinated. And that process has been, like, very confusing and opaque. Like, technically in Colorado, a couple of weeks ago, the governor said teachers are, like, in now, like, in that expanded realm of people who should be up available for getting vaccines. Um, but I have had basically no communication from anything with regard to that, other than there was a, a mass email sent by the school district to all school faculty within the district at 5 p.m., 5 p.m. on a Saturday, the time where if I were to pick a time to send an email in the week, that was not just when people were sleeping to make sure that nobody would see the email. 5 p.m. on a Saturday would be like the scientifically determined time um, that you could send an email. So I was like making dinner. They send this email and I think about 10 minutes after the email comes in, because I didn't notice the email when it came in. They also sent a robocall to faculty, probably realizing, oh, nobody's going to see this email. Um, and I saw I got the call, but I didn't pick up the phone um, because I didn't. I only saw I had the call missed. I was like, that's weird. And I checked my, e my school email just to see if there's something there. And they had sent this email at 5 p.m. that said there are 200 doses of the vaccine at this one location that is open until 6 p.m. Go there if you want and like see if you can get a vaccine, basically. Like it was more officially worded than that. But I saw this like, so you're saying there is a couple hundred doses of the vaccine at one location and there is a one hour window from you getting this email to being able to go there and get it and i looked up where the location was and it was like a 20 minute drive from where i live and i was like i mean this is not i'm not going to like desperately run out of the house uh right before i was about to eat dinner on saturday evening to go see if i can get the vaccine and about 10 minutes after that email came in a second email then came in that said the location is now full. Please do not go there because like social distancing and stuff is like we can't have any more people in the building. And it was just like, yeah, of course. Of course, this worked out exactly the way you would expect. Sending this crazy email saying you have a one hour window to go get the vaccine. That it's like turns out everybody just like bum rushed this like hospital or clinic wherever it is. Um, and then they were like, we can't have all these people here at once. It's like, this is an insane. It, it, it was just the most insane way to do that. I have no idea what anybody in that process was thinking. I'm guessing that it was just like these were vaccine doses that were probably not expected to be available for teachers. And that like they were just all of a sudden they're like, well, we might as well hop on it immediately. But uh, 
that was a very, very weird, like, one hour of my life is, like, working through the logistics of that and deciding not to go try to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, luckily, I mean, you're young and healthy, so you're not the highest risk here, but God, that is fucking stupid. Yeah. Man. Speaking of fucking stupid, I don't mm. know if you heard, Our here, I'm in Iowa, uh, yeah. and our piece Jesus. of shit, dipshit governor on Friday night at 5, which is when politicians do news dumps they don't want the public to notice, lifted all COVID restrictions on the state. And you're like, Jonathan, did she lift some? No, I mean all. No more mask mandate. No more social distancing required. Uh, bars and restaurants are allowed to pack to capacity. That was said in the in the like press release. Um, and then you might ask, well, is Iowa like doing well at the virus? No, no. We are 47th out of 50 states in terms of vaccine distribution because we have this nutso lunatic vaccine plan where we are currently in phase 1B that has five tiers. And I don't know what tier in phase 1B we are. And then phase two, whatever that is, eh, we, there's no timeline for that. Uh, so we're not getting any vaccines out to anyone. I was a state with a lot of old people. We should do that, but we're not. Um, and our, like, our, the curve is going down on cases, like relative to like the peak in January. But it is still higher than at any other point in the entire last year. Um, and yeah. Kim Reynolds, because she's a fucking piece of shit Republican, is just like, yeah, fuck it. Just do whatever you want. Because, um, you know, this is a red state and she knows she could literally go out and shoot a voter every single day from now until her reelection. And she would still get reelected because she's the Republican candidate. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, all this shit is fucked. Like, it's really weird to see the way that, like, as the envelope gets pushed further and further in terms of, like, the total number of cases, that, like, people just sort of keep on lifting up the floor of what they're willing to tolerate. And so it's just like, a, oh, you, you know, you because you look at it, it's like, well, our case numbers are a little bit, because it's what's the numbers in Colorado are basically, like, it's the same trend as what Iowa saw, where it's like there was a huge peak around the holiday season and then it's sort of gone down a little bit but it's still higher than it was ever before like it's higher than when we were having more severe restrictions it's basically at the level that it was like right when we decided to go full remote last semester um and it's just weird to see that and be like i mean what are you making basing your decisions on at some point like you're just sort of deciding that to let restrictions go for no real reason and then of course you know i'm i'm expecting in a couple of weeks now is when we're going to start seeing the spikes up again from the consequences of letting down some restrictions like going back to hybrid school uh, learning models and stuff like that and then we'll have it, to go back to remote and it's it's ludicrous stupid. it's ludicrous and like you know now there's this national debate going on um about whether schools should reopen and all this stuff and like the teachers union has one point of view and other, you know there's a lot going on there um but, like, to me, it seems like a pretty fucking simple solution, which is just just vaccinate all the teachers and then, like, do what you're kind of doing. I don't know. And then, like, then, then like give schools a bunch of money to do it safely. Like, like none of this is fucking rocket science. Not, like, the rocket science part was making the vaccine and we did that. This is just logistics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I hope so that's safe. the kind of week it's been. Yeah. Uh, my kind of week, I told you guys last week that I was gearing up for my PhD comprehensive exams 
which is where I do these uh, three individual four-hour test sittings based on big reading lists I've made. It's it's the big exam component of getting a doctorate in the humanities. Um, my last exam is tomorrow, which is the day this podcast is coming out. So tomorrow from when we're recording it. While you're listening to this, I might I might be done. I might be done. I might be taking it, something like that. Um, but no, I did eight hours of tests this week, Sean, where they send me an email with the like the questions that the exam committee has come up with. And then I write, I wrote 21 pages for both exams. Um, um, that's double, double-spaced formatted. I, they, I think it was like mm. 13 single-spaced. And, uh, and just write for four hours solid and then send those off. And then, uh, and then I'm just exhausted. Like, Sean, literally nothing I have ever done in my life has exhausted me like these exams. Like, strenuous physical activity, like walking around all day in Japan when I was there, that's exhausting. But, like, bodily exhaustion is one thing. It's predictable. You kind of know you get off your feet and you'll be okay. Mental exhaustion is such a mm-hmm. weird thing, and it's like, man, it's it's so crazy. And I know this is not like a super relatable thing, but it's 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 that it's four solid hours of writing. It's three full essays you have to write. It's a massive synthesis of just like dozens of books and documents and movies and stuff. And because it's only like four hours sounds like a long time, but it's pretty short for what you're actually having to do. Um, and so you just have to be on mentally for that entire solid stretch with pretty minimal time to like actually like outline or think the things through. It's sort of like make the connections and go and write and like it's it's almost to the level of being like academic stream of consciousness. Uh, and it's wild. Like both days I've done it, I have just been the rest of that day like playing Genshin Impact and running around opening chests has been the most mentally strenuous thing I've been able to do because it is just it's wild it's just like I feel like a vegetable after it um and so I'm fine it's going well I I, both of them so far have gone well um but good god I think the phrase I used on Twitter was nightmarishly exhausting and I think that is the right phrase for it that's and that's why we need games like Genshin Impact that is yes we do need you need the game that you can just listen to the nice pleasant relaxing music and enjoy the the beautiful colors and just run around and make the numbers go higher than they were before you open the chest yeah that's a good way to put it (laughs) yeah like i have been leaning on that game so hard sean and sometimes i feel lazy and then i'm like well i'm doing everything i'm still i took the tests i've done all the studying um it's just like there's been kind of a a lot of downtime between that but like i kind of i've realized i need it for like just mental relaxation Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm also teaching and stuff, but yeah, I've uh, been studying for my final um, exam, and that's the that's the biggest set of notes I have. I have 330 pages of notes for that. I have about 60 more pages of notes to go over because I'm note taking on my notes, which is a ridiculous thing, uh, and using a lot of sticky notes and all of that. So, anyway, um, it's a crazy process. This time next week, hopefully, I will be well. This time next week, I'll be done with the exams one way or another. Uh, and then the oral exam is later this month because then you have to talk to your whole committee and, I don't know, defend what you wrote. But, yeah, it's uh, it's been a thing. And, uh, you know, I am I am itching for this last exam, Sean, because it's the one on Japanese film history, which is where mm-hmm. I got to read a lot of things that I told you about that are frustrating, like um, Japanese film history books from, like, the 60s and 70s that are just ludicrously racist and orientalist and, like, just I, I did a whole Twitter thread on this, so so I am I am ready to go off on that and uh, and see if I can make some waves on that exam because there's some crazy shit there. 
Yeah, that was definitely those big Twitter threads you did on all like with the screenshots of the books you've been reading. It seems like there's some fucking there there was some fucking shit that got written in the sixties and seventies on that subject that is just like, oh wow, you wow, holy shit. It's like okay. <laughs> and then today on animation, because like I was reviewing all my notes on animation film history, which is part of my like a subset of my list there. And like that's where you I feel like live action Japanese film history has really learned the lessons and there's a lot of great books I could recommend and I probably will do a Twitter thread at some point where I recommend like good things I've read um but like most anime history is just awful and and like there's a couple of decent sources I've found but there's also a lot that's just like like you know one day Sean you and I will do our full rant on this podcast about why in fact anime characters do look Japanese thank you very much uh-huh. because of the stupid white person um just insistence that all Japanese characters look Caucasian they look they look Caucasian don't they don't they don't no they don't fuck off um but anyway uh yeah there's a lot of bad anime history out there uh so anyway um yeah but you guys probably aren't interested in academic stuff what you might be interested in is the video games we've been playing so i did want to ask sean have you finished hitman 3 yes so i've done because i kind of did what we talked about last time where i just did a one playthrough of all the maps and then have started going back through and i've done so i've done one playthrough of all the maps and then i've done a lot of stuff on uh dubai and dartmoor um, but I haven't really gone back into the later maps yet to do those because I'm sort of working my way through trying to get high mastery. Um, it's very good. I don't think I'm overall as high on Hitman 3 specifically as you are um, in that I do think that... I th- I wish I wish there was at least one more map because I think the game feels slightly small um, because it's got... Dubai is a, like... It's bigger than the tutorial maps in Hitman 1 and 2 by quite a bit, but it's also not the size of a full Hitman map. It doesn't have like all the stuff you'd expect in it. And the last map of the game, which is cool, is not really a like replay it a bunch of times. Like it's more of a like here's like a kind of finale that's like kind of a cool, fun, gimmicky sort of level that is a good way to kind of cap off the story, um, but is not really a traditional Hitman style map. So I wish that there was one more traditional Hitman style map in there because I feel like I'm going to burn through a lot of the stuff that's in hitman 3 um kind of quickly but but overall i think what is there is very very good i like the um china map in particular is fucking awesome like i think that map is really really cool um the the vineyard map is also the vineyard map is really cool but i also feel like i stumbled on a really fast way to do it on my first time through and so that's the one i think i have like spent the less the least amount of time in like my first playthrough on that map was like 15 to 20 minutes just because i like ended up walking straight into two ways to do the the assassinations that were very quick and i felt like oh man this was like super efficient i got like silent assassin on that on my first playthrough without even like really going for it and be like man i just dumb lucked my way into this really stupidly easy way to kill these people um so i don't know that map that well but it seemed very cool um but yeah i'm i'm just very excited to go in I've just been kind of like plucking away a little bit each day, uh, like doing a couple of challenges on Dubai and Dartmoor before I'm moving on. Yeah, and maybe we'll do a bigger Hitman 3 podcast when we've both like mastered everything. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I don't disagree with anything about you're saying. I guess I just, there's something about that that I actually kind of like is the, the smaller focus of the maps. Um, but I don't just dis- like, it's a, it's very much a thing of like, if yeah, I kind of feel like if you were someone who's like Sean, like super high on Hitman one and two, you might find those same things disappointing. And if like me, you kind of wanted just, I don't know, kind of a little more cohesion out of it. You might like Hitman three more, uh, either way, we both agree. Obviously it's a great game. People should play. Um, oh yes, yeah, yeah, and I've and I've been going back through and having a ton of fun. So I did all of I have hit level twenty mastery on uh, Dubai, uh, Dartmoor, and Berlin, and I have done Silent Assassin, Suit Only, and Sniper Assassin on all of those plus China because China I stumbled on a way to do Silent uh, Sniper Assassin, Suit Only very easily on that map. Um, but that and that map is fucking huge. That's one I'm excited to dive into more. Um, and then I've been playing a bunch of Genshin Impact the last couple days. But no, I. I like Hitman 3 a lot, and, you know, one of the nice things about Hitman 3 is that, hey, if if it doesn't feel like it has quite enough for you, eh, all of Hitman 1 and 2 are in there, too. <laughs> yeah, because there's still, like, some of the silent assassin suit-only stuff I have not done on some of the Hitman 1 and Hitman 2 maps. Most of them I've done, but there are a couple that I never ended up finishing yeah. those. Um, partially because I think they took this out in Hitman 3, but in Hitman 2, they had specifically, it was silent assassin suit-only on the master difficulty, um, and I don't think they have a specific master difficulty one for the Hitman 3 maps because that is really fucking hard because you only have one save you can do on master difficulty. So you basically have to practice the run to get to a point where you're like, this is where I want to plant my like one checkpoint I have um, after you've set up everything and be like, this is where I can restart from and like um, and do that. And like that is very fun, but a very grueling process. So I never ended up doing it on every single map. Um, but now that they've kind of taken that challenge out for the Hitman 3 maps, all probably um, it'll be easier to sort of like go through and do that if you can scum save, save scum a little bit more um, and kind of set up some some fun, weird scenarios that you do when you're doing uh, suit only. Yeah, and I, man, I, I've never really pushed myself to do it like systematically, like go in and try to do it on multiple maps. But I tried it on Dubai and figured out and kind of like put the pieces together and figured out a really good way to do it. And I just kind of got bitten by the bug. And then I went and did it on Dartmoor and I did it on Berlin. And like, it is so fun to go in with mm-hmm. the intention of like, I'm going to do this all in my suit. And and for me, it's dif- different because usually I just kill everybody that I need to. Um, and on Silent Assassin, you know, you, you try not to kill everybody. Um, but man, it is, it is a blast. I had to come up with some really crazy ways to do things like... Dartmoor is built in a really interesting way for this because Dartmoor just has like cupboards and boxes everywhere to put bodies because the way to do that is to like just clear out a lot of guards and like knock them out um and so that one there was some real high comedy in how I was doing a lot of shit in Hitman 3 on on Dartmoor um but man it is it is it is such a fun game and I I wish I could tear myself away from Genshin Impact uh, for more than like 10 minutes at a time (laughs) to go play more Hitman because I love it. Um, And I really love that final level in Hitman 3. I agree. I mean, obviously, it's it's not the kind of one that you're going to play over and over again. But as someone who has always enjoyed the like go in guns blazing approach to Hitman, uh, that map was made for me. It was a love Mm -hmm. letter to me. It's basically if like Naughty Dog made a Hitman level like from Uncharted, it's it's great. I fucking love it. Yeah, no, I, I had a very good time with that because there is something... Because on when I go through the maps for, for the first time, I always do it with, like, the... I'm not going to, like, stop and restart if I don't do Silent Assassin stuff, but I'm going to try to do Silent Assassin on my first run just to, you know, hide the... Like, knock people out, hide the bodies, all that kind of stuff because it just makes it more tense. 
Um, and so there's since I had just done that on one run through on like four maps in a, or three maps in a row, basically, it was like, oh, now you can just like everybody on this map is someone that it's OK to kill. Um, in fact, you will get points for killing them. It's like, great. OK, awesome. Um, let me just turn on the like the John Wick Hitman mode um, that I, I pioneered in the Colorado map in Hitman 1 where you just murder every single person on the map. And it's like, let's just go. Let's just systematically fucking just murder everybody. And it is such a fun, fun, like a like a grossly fun way to play those games. And it was cool to see them like incorporate that into the the design and into the story. Yeah, I love it. And the story is so good in Hitman Three. I was really impressed because it was not something that impressed me in one or two. In two, they clearly had some kind of budget thing going on with those cutscenes. But just like it's a really kind of compelling story. I have never been engaged by the question. Who is 47 and, and what is his humanity? I've never cared about that. They've tried it in the movies too and who gives a shit? But like they pulled it off in this game in a way that like I just found very compelling. Yeah, and, and the, I think the big level like story like that, like the big picture perspective story is good. Um, but particularly I think the thing that stands out the most is how sophisticated they've gotten at like layering and narrative elements just into the things you encounter in the levels themselves. Yeah. Um, because that's where um, I'm excited to replay the China and Vineyard map more because that's like I started to sort of pick up on, oh, here are like the things that in Hitman 1 and Hitman 2 would have been mission stories, but they're just not marking them as mission stories because that was the thing where there's only three mission stories on any of the major maps. Um, but there are there's still the same amount of different kinds of things you can do and like more bespoke assassinations and all that like those are still there. They just sort of um, disguise them a little bit more, and you have to kind of like poke poke them out and find them for yourself. Because um, I found some of those. That's basically how I ended up doing the vineyard thing very fast. Is there's a couple of those that were basically the amount of content of a mission story and the kind of the bespoke quality of mission story, but weren't labeled that way. And so that's where it, like it felt especially like I kind of kind of force gumped my way into it of like overhearing a phone call conversation and being like oh, does that mean I can do this? And just being like, oh, let me try it. And they're like, oh, this totally works. And this dude is now dead. And then walking out and then seeing this other person like, wait, can this thing a thing I do? It's like, yeah, let me find some rat poison. Okay, yeah, I can just poison this lady this way. Okay, and she's dead. And it's like, holy shit, it's been 15 minutes and I cleared this map. Oh my God, I'm like the world's best fucking like Magoo assassin, just not knowing what I'm <laughs> trying to do, but just somehow ending up with these two people dead at my feet. Uh, I would play a game called Mr. Magoo Assassin if IO Interactive made it. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's... And honestly, that... The way they've structured that, Sean, makes me, for one, more engaged in, like, seeking out all the hidden corners when they're not all labeled as mission stories. Because I went back and looked, and some of the ones in Hitman 1, there's, like, 19 mission stories. And I just would never really play it that way. But there's something about, like, seeing them on the list of challenges or just noticing something in the level and being like... Um, well, what'll happen if I do this? And then seeing that it's rewarded is really cool. So mm -hmm. uh, not that that wasn't always there, but it's just the presentation style I like um, in this one a little more. But yeah, it's it's a good game. We will have more to say about it at some point, I'm sure. Yes. Also, right. I continue to be playing Genshin Impact, just to, yeah. just to say it. Me too. Um, <laughs> it's very good. It's, I, it's uh... just very good. I'm almost done with like... All the major content in that game. There's like a couple of world quests I haven't done. Um, and I haven't spent much time in like the Abyss or any of that side of it. There's sort of some of that repeatable stuff. But like I've I've pretty well cleared out most of the major content in that that is currently in the game at this point, And it feels good. 
I am almost done with the Liyue main quest line. Um, and then I have the major slice of content I have not done is all the character stories you get. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've only recently gotten to the adventure rank where you start unlocking those. Uh, I did, God, I did do one of them and it was really fun. Uh, and then I started another one, but, but those seem fun. And then I've got a couple more world missions that are showing up. Um, I need to, I've gotten, I've fully upgraded everything in the Mondstadt with like the, the statue of the seven. I found mm-hmm. all the Ammonoculus and I am, I'm missing like 10 Geoculuses now to like finish it in Liyue. And it's, and I know it's going to be an absolute fucking bitch finding those last 10. So once you, f- I think you have to finish the Liyue stuff before this unlocks, but it, you can craft a thing at the alchemy table that is like a Geoculus detector stone. I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically this like breakable item you can equip and it like you pop it and then it will highlight a like radius on your map of where one of the ones you haven't found yet is oh yeah okay so, yeah they okay. added those into the game like a month and or like that was like a little bit before the dragon spine stuff they put those okay in. i was gonna say if they had a microtransaction for just put the last 10 on my map i would pay for that um but this is good too um i mean it's honestly actually one way the game actually does not have as many microtransactions as i would expect in that you cannot pay your way through any of the like actual like content in the game mm-hmm. like you can pay to to get more materials i guess and like uh stuff for pulling wishes but not that kind of side of the game which is nice it, it, it like removes that like itch in the back of your head that you might be able to do that um i did unlock a new character for my team i got uh diona who is the mm-hmm. little cat girl um ice archer which was perfect because the thing that had been missing from my team is that i had so far only unlocked sean one ranged character who was like one that they don't just give you um and that was ningyong the the geo lady mm-hmm. um and i don't love using her that much she's interesting she's useful to go find like ore and stuff but she wasn't one i wanted on my uh, fighting party so i just really needed some kind of like ranged fighter and i wanted an ice fighter because the only other ice fighter i had was Kayu, the the guy they just give you and mm-hmm. as you said a couple weeks ago sean you know that feels like showing up with your with you know your mom to school because like they just give you that character i want a unique character so yeah. i got my little cat ice archer it was exactly what i wanted uh i didn't even know she existed but like that was the like combination i wanted and she's extremely funny uh and and cute little cat girl with a tail running around and it's silly uh and i enjoy having her on my team awesome yeah i i have her and then i actually i think i now have almost all the four star characters in the game because those are actually pretty easy to get once you've like played enough of the game that you've just done a bunch of roles you just kind of get most of those um i think the main one i don't have off the top of my head i know i don't have is like water sword dude who likes the books that's like the yeah one Sean I I don't have. yeah um but yeah i got her and then i i got her when she was originally put into the game but then this time it's her, the rocker character, and Beto are on the banner. And so I got the rocker girl. And if I get one more Beto, I max out her fucking constellation. Nice. Because you know, she's in the store. You know, you can get that. You get that one. You get two currencies every time you do a poll. Um, and there's like one you get a lot of and the one you get like a little bit of. Um, and the one you get a little bit of, these little like coins or whatever they are, you can buy a character that is in the store. There's two characters that they put in the score the store that they roll out every month and Beto is one of the ones and this is like the first time I think I've ever spent that currency because you get it so slowly but I bought her and I'm like yes now just one more one more Beto and I can max out her constellation and my uh, pirate queen will be perfect she is awesome she is a perennial 
she and Diluc are the two I keep on my team all the time, mm-hmm. and, and they're awesome. So anyway, um, yes, we will we will shut up about Genshin Impact and talk about something significantly worse. Um, would you like to talk with me, Sean, about Batman Forever? Let's talk about the third Batman movie in the series of Batman films that they made, uh, starting with the first, the Tim Burton Batman movie that is called Batman Forever, the most inexplicable title for a movie ever made. Yeah, I mean, they didn't go the Pokemon route and call the fourth movie Batman Forever with a four, and that is just, that is fucking malpractice. Uh, they should have done that. It would have been so much better. Instead, it's the third movie. It's bullshit. It is definitely the worst thing about this otherwise great film. Yeah, I did like. But seriously though, why is it called Batman Forever? I don't know, but Tim Burton has an amazing quote about this, where he complained about it like years later. Let me bring this up. Um, I do not know. I like. There's something in like the official WB synopsis about like they tried to like turn it into a. Uh, oh, they even have it on Wikipedia here, where um, you know Batman meets and develops feelings for psychologist Doctor Chase Meridian, which brings him to the point to decide if he will leave a normal life. Or if he is destined to fight crime as Batman forever. Yeah, no. I mean, one, um, that's not really the plot of most of that movie. They just sort of decide to do that at some random point. And then two, that's no. still not a good reason to call it Batman forever. No, here's... So Tim Burton <sighs> said this about the movie uh, at some point. They have the year in here. In like 2000, Tim Burton said, I always hated those titles like Batman forever. That sounds like a tattoo that somebody would get when they're on drugs or something. Or something some kid would write in the yearbook. So Tim Burton had it right. That's what Batman Forever sounds like. Yes. Yeah, Batman Forever, bad title for a fucking bad movie. Oh my god, Jonathan, I did not enjoy this one very much at all. No, there's very little to enjoy. There's some. It's critically interesting to break apart, but no, this is one of the most inept movies I've ever seen. I do not like have a visceral hatred for it in the way of something like Batman v Superman or Amazing Spider-Man 2 because I do not find it like ethically noxious in the way i find those films um but like it is horrendously made joel schumacher you know now i feel bad because the man is dead but he was a horrible director and i like batman forever is one of the most ineptly made hollywood movies ever it cost a hundred million dollars and looks like it cost maybe a 20th of that he is he is like this is honestly a movie like film students should watch as like a guide of what not to do. What not to do in cinematography, what not to do in lighting, what not to do in script writing, what not to do in directing actors. Like it is just, Joel Schumacher is one of those directors who if you want to study how not to make movies, just look at his choices and don't make those choices. Like holistically terrible filmmaking and this is a holistically terrible film and i know this movie has it's like nostalgic proponents and like for some reason batman forever has always gotten kind of a pass from a lot of people it was a big hit it did more money than batman returns um it was the big movie of 1995 but like as far as i can tell everyone was on fucking drugs for the end of the 90s because all the movies that made money were fucking terrible people still say armageddon is good and they're insane it's awful um and this is yeah this is just very very bad um and i don't even there's so many ways to pick it apart but it it was bad enough that it got you tweeting about the movie sean and that takes a lot yeah i'm i am not someone who uses twitter all that much at least as like someone who makes the tweets um i'm more of a consumer of tweets uh much to my misfortune um but (laughs) yeah this was one where I just, I, it made it make more sense to me, Jonathan, like why sometimes you do the big tweet threads because I'm like, oh, this is like 
Sometimes it's just because you want to like celebrate the thing that you're watching that is very good. But when it's something bad, it's like a coping mechanism. Because yes. it's like because I was just watching this movie on my own on a Saturday evening. Um, you know, I put that 4K Blu-ray. Uh, that you know, I've got I've got the best looking version of this movie you can own on home video now. Um, and I was watching that. Um, which like hey, the video quality, like the like what they did technically with that Blu-ray is very good. It's as good as what they did with Batman and Batman Returns. Um, it's just, you know, it's not a good movie. So it doesn't, even if the, everything looks very crisp, but boy, you can see how bad those fucking sets look when they look that fucking crisp and right in front of your face. Um, but yeah, so I, I was watching it and just had to, um, I, I mean, I made my first tweet, which is like very accurate. This is literally what I did. I watched the first five minutes of the movie and had to pause the movie because, uh, Tommy Lee Jones showed up. And I had to be confronted with the fact, not, not of that I've known forever that Tommy Lee Jones plays Two-Face in this movie. I've seen the movie, but I don't remember much of it from when I was a kid. So it's like, this is a fact I've known, but I've never had to like really confront it as an adult, having watched a lot of movies that Tommy Lee Jones is in and knowing him as an actor and enjoying him as an actor to actually see his performance in this movie. And I had to stop and look it up as like, what is he even doing in this movie? Um, and that sort of, you know, continued to be the thing as I watched the movie. But, like, I just have to stop every once in a while and tweet the dialogue that just happened because, oh, my God. Oh, my God. The dialogue in this movie is fucking terrible. It's so bad. Um, so, yeah, like, I had to – I actually did a handful of tweets as a coping mechanism. It's the most I've tweeted in a row in years. Yes. So should we quickly go through some of the history of how we got to the point of Batman Forever and then we'll dive mm -hmm. into the movie? Yeah. So, just brief history. You know, Bat. We talked about this with Batman Returns. Batman Returns did fine at the box office. It did obviously very well for the time, but it did quite a bit less than the original Batman. And then it was also kind of critically divisive because Batman Returns is a deeply weird movie. And also, you know, Warner was mainly making Batman movies to sell toys, and Batman Returns was very hard to sell toys on to the point where I actually didn't know this. They had tried doing a Happy Meal tie-in with McDonald's. And then when the movie came out, McDonald's pulled it because they were, like, so horrified by the movie, um, which makes sense. I, I get that. Um, you know, apparently the, you would squeeze the penguin toy and he would do the thing about the flipper trick. And it's like, that's not for kids. I'm kidding. They didn't make that, but that would okay. be amazing. You um, know, I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if that somehow got yeah. through. Yep. So uh, Tim Burton was not invited back to make Batman Forever. This was not a, like, conscious uncoupling. This was... Tim Burton was like, you can stay on as producer, we'll pay you some money, but you are not directing the next Batman movie. Um, so then they were considering some other directors before they landed on Joel Schumacher. And what's funny is that they almost picked two really good directors. One of whom was Sam Raimi. They considered Sam Raimi for Batman Forever, which I, I'd say he dodged a bullet and found the right superhero franchise for him. So good for, for Sam Raimi. And they also considered John McTiernan, who is not an auteur or anything, but he's the guy who made Predator, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October, um, you know, very capable director. He was in jail for quite a while for tax evasion, um, but, you know, that's not the worst kind of crime celebrities commit these days. Um, but they wound up with Joel Schumacher, who up to this point had not done many, like, big Hollywood movies. I think his biggest movie up to this point is The Lost Boys with a young Kiefer Sutherland um, and, and Corey Haim. Uh, I have not seen that movie. There's a bunch of other like very very bad movies on his uh, on his like list here, uh, including like the original Flatliners. Right before Batman Forever, he had done the movie The Client, which uh, also has Tommy Lee Jones as one of the leads. So I guess that's how they met. That movie I think did 
decently well and was like probably the best received movie of his career. So then he comes and does Batman Forever. Um, and like, this is a very confused production because, you know, by firing Tim Burton, like this is, this is snapping back. So Batman Returns was they gave full creative control over to Tim Burton and Tim Burton did his thing. This is snapping back the other way and like we are going to focus group this movie and try to figure out what we can put in that is merchandisable and all of that stuff. Um, not as insane as they would do it for Batman and Robin, which is by Joel Schumacher's admission, a two-hour toy commercial. But like a lot of what ends up in this movie is because of I think a lot of like very confused like corporate like cut and pasting um there are several writers who work on this the person who is largely responsible for the final shooting script like what ends up on screen is akiva goldsman uh and akiva goldsman is one of the least talented people in hollywood uh he is a fucking terrible writer he is probably the worst person who has ever won an academy award because he won his academy award for screenwriting for a beautiful mind which is a terrible fucking yeah, movie a beautiful totally. mind does not get talked about enough about how fucking bad it is but it is one of the worst best picture winners like up until green book i think it was the worst best picture winner of like these last like of the 2000s um it fucking stole that from fellowship of the ring which is just when you look back on it oh my god i kind of get it for chicago in 2002 chicago is an okay movie a beautiful mind is a bad movie um and then akiva goldsman hmm, let's let's look at the list sean he wrote I, Robot, the Isaac Asimov book that became a Will Smith action movie and was bad. Mm -hmm. He yeah. wrote Cinderella Man, the Russell Crowe boxing movie that was bad. Uh, he wrote the Da Vinci Code movie, which somehow made the book worse, which is hard because that's a bad book. Uh, he wrote I Am Legend. That's probably one of the better things he is associated with, uh, although I think he only did a first draft on that. Um, he did a movie called Winter's Tale, which basically killed his career. That is known as one of the worst movies ever made. Right. If you do not know about Winter's Tale, go read the plot synopsis. It is hilarious. That's also the only movie Akiva Goldsman has directed because he was put in jail after that. Not literal jail, <laughs> Hollywood jail. Um, uh, he wrote one of the Divergent movies. That's the series where they tried splitting the last movie in two, like they did with Twilight and Harry Potter, and then it just never got made. Yeah. That's um, the series that the you know the young adult novel adaptation died with the Divergent yes. series in Hollywood. Yep. Um, he did. Uh, I didn't even know this came out that there was a 2017 attempt to remake the the the, the Ring franchise. He was associated with that. Uh, he did the script for Transformers Five uh, and the Dark Tower movie. That was really bad. The uh, Stephen King adaptation. His name is on that as well. Uh, Akiva Goldsman. And, and he is the sole credited writer on Batman and Robin. So Akiva Goldsman is terrible. And like, I have a lot of disdain for Joel Schumacher's filmmaking. I have even more disdain for Akiva Goldsman's writing. Um, yeah, it seems like his whole career is people giving him really good like source material and him fucking it up. Um, yeah. Because even I Am Legend, which you're right, is like the best movie out of all of those. Um, like, is a pale imitation of how good the novel is so yeah like it, it you know yeah it's yeah oh and Not on tv on tv he's one of the lead writers on titans the teen titans reboot of course and on star well, trek everyone saw what he did with robin in batman forever and batman and robin was like well yeah. we got to give this guy his own tv show where he gets to write this character and he is one of the showrunners on Star Trek Discovery, which I have heard a lot of bad things about, and that makes sense. So, yeah, they just, he is like the poster child for, like, not just mediocre, but, like, bad white dudes. Like, I don't know if he's a bad dude in real life, I just mean talent-wise, getting, like, every opportunity on Earth, no matter how their stuff performs. 
it's insane. Um, and yeah, so so Kiva Goldsman writes it. Basically, Joel Schumacher is the director. Um, and then, of course, you have to go through uh, a casting process because um, Michael Keaton was not opposed to coming back. That is like something that should be known. Like Michael Keaton at first was on board to do this uh, and was going to get a pretty hefty salary. And basically, when he saw the script, he said, I'm out. <laughs> he like saw an early draft. Yeah, because Michael Keaton is a smart man. He's a smart man and like... I, I think Michael Keaton, you can see this throughout his whole career, he is not a guy who, like, I don't know, chases paychecks. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to say he's he's never done anything for a paycheck. He was in Herbie Fully Loaded. I'm sure he did not, like, seek that one out. But, like, you know, I, he's not someone who has, like, chased sort of that direction, so it makes sense. He turned down a $15 million offer for this movie um, and went off to Brighter Pastures. Um, and so then there was a, a process of trying to recast the role, and they they landed on Val Kilmer, but like man, they had a lot of interesting actors in contention. They almost cast Ethan Hawke. Uh, Ethan Hawke was offered the role. I think Ethan Hawke at that point would have been a really interesting Batman. Um, they also like interviewed Keanu Reeves for this. Uh, Rafe Fine, I think, is one of the funniest ones on this list. Uh, Johnny Depp and apparently Mel Gibson, which would have been really fucking weird in the mid '90s, but uh-huh. or at any point. He would have been way too old even at that point. But yeah, um, so those are all people they were looking at. They finally, they, they did Val Kilmer. Um, and then, of course, casting everyone else, including, and I think this is an interesting part of this movie's legacy, um, reversing casting from black actors to white actors, which they did in two places. Um, so Billy D. Williams was cast as Harvey Dent in the original Batman 89 fully expecting that he would come back as Two-Face at some point, and he thought he was going to be in this movie, and Joel Schumacher made the decision that he didn't want Billy D. Williams and went with Tommy Lee Jones. So, black to white. What is less well-known is that Batman Returns, in its script, had Robin. It was a smaller element of the movie, but they wrote Dick Grayson into the movie, and they had cast Marlon Wayans, or, um, yeah, Marlon Wayans, the son of Damon Wayans, uh, as Robin in that film. They were going to have a black Robin. Um, now that did not quite make it to shooting, uh, Marlon Wayans did not shoot scenes, but that is where they were going with it, and for this movie, uh, from what I can tell, they did not consider a single black actor, um, they exclusively looked at white people, the list was Leonardo DiCaprio, who also turned it down after seeing the script, uh, <laughs> they, they mm-hmm. offered it to him, uh, Matt Damon, Corey Feldman, Mark Wahlberg, that would have been a fucking thing. Uh, Ewan McGregor, Jude Law, Alan Cumming, and Christian Bale, who was a young actor at the time, and he would get a, uh, let's say, a better role in Batman in the future. Um, so Man, yeah, they... I would love, like, hard Scottish Ewan McGregor Robin, just, like, inexplicably he just has a Scottish <laughs> accent. Um, that'd be fucking great. He's playing his character from Trainspotting, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'd watch that. Um, so yeah, they considered a bunch of great actors for Robin, and then they picked a terrible actor, Chris O'Donnell, um, and put him in the movie, despite the fact that he looks like he's 45 in this film. So um, funny. It's so funny. Uh, and yeah, so the casting is sort of all over the place. And of course they cast Jim Carrey as the Riddler. A lot of people were considered. Uh, 95, though, is like peak Jim Carrey in the United States. This is coming off of The Mask and Ace Ventura and uh, whatever terrible shit he was in. Um, and so he is going to be uh, the Riddler. Um, I think the weirdest one is Tommy Lee Jones, who is coming off of his Oscar win for The Fugitive, which he is phenomenal in. Um, and, like, this is the peak of Tommy Lee Jones's career also. He had the lay of the land. He could have picked anything. And somehow he was roped into this. And he did not like it. 
Uh, and we'll read some quotes about that later. Because it's fucking great. Um, but yeah. So that is the story behind making Batman Forever. Uh, it's a weird fucking movie. Sean, where should we start with this disaster of a film? I guess because usually we've started also with what our history with that's true. the movie is um because this is this in batman and robin for me are like the batman movies i am by far the least personally familiar with because i've seen them both but in like the haze of childhood of like seeing the movie when it was on tv with like commercials or seeing like i think we have like not we didn't i don't think we bought a vhs of either of those movies but i think we have like recorded on tape a VHS from like a TV airing that they did of like a double feature or something. Um, yeah. We probably have that still somewhere in the storage room. Um, but yeah, so it's like these are movies that I watched and have been like broadly aware of and aware of like the conversation around them. But like I, but I don't feel like before now having watched Batman Forever again last night, they were movies I felt like I couldn't really describe as having watched because I had just forgotten most of what they were. And the, most of the stuff I knew about Batman Forever and Batman Robin is less my remembering having watched it and more my knowing what is in it from cultural osmosis um, yeah. and that kind of overriding any memories I might have had. Because I just never remember... I mean, I never had a strong attachment to the Tim Burton movies as a kid either. Um, but I particularly never really was attracted to what Batman Forever and Batman Robin were. Like, I never liked the look of them. I never liked the style of them. Like, even as a kid, they didn't do anything for me. Um, so these are movies that I always just kind of, like, stayed away from. And so that was my experience watching it now, was really just, like, seeing it mostly fresh. Like, most of the movie, like, the plot and things like that was stuff I did not remember at all. Um, I just remembered, yeah, okay, the Riddler's in this, Two-Face's in this, Val Kilmer plays Batman, they get Robin in here. I remember Robert, Robin being very shitty, and that was, like, the extent of my memory. So this was a very, 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 very fresh watch for me. So I got to, like, experience the badness, um, I feel like, without many preconceptions kind of going in about, like, what there was about the movie and what would be good and what would be bad. Um, and it turns out that most of it was just bad. Yeah, so I we definitely owned the original Batman, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin on VHS tape. I know we owned those. I don't think we ever owned Batman Returns. I know I had seen it as a kid. I think we didn't own it because like I didn't. That's not a kids movie, um, and I didn't really like it. Um, I know I watched Batman and Robin a lot as a kid because it just came out at the right time. Um, I don't know if I liked it. I, I think one thing to remember is like. When we were kids, there's no streaming or anything. You kind of mm -hmm. watch what you had. So if I had a tape of Batman and Robin, I would have seen it several times. And it's the same with Batman Forever. I have never liked Batman Forever. Like, even as a kid, I didn't like this movie. There are things in Batman and Robin I liked as a kid. Like, I found Arnold Schwarzenegger funny. There's stuff like that. And I still do. Like, I, I will just... My prior on Batman and Robin is Arnold Schwarzenegger is not the best take on Mr. Freeze ever. But he is a <laughs> lot more entertaining than Jim Carrey as fucking Riddler. Um, and like his ice puns are good for a laugh if even if it's a laugh at the movie's expense uh, there's nothing funny Jim Carrey does in this movie I just want to punch him every second he's on screen and I just never like because part of it with Batman Forever is Batman Forever is an immensely tonally confused movie because mm -hmm. sometimes it is trying to be a really poor imitation of Batman 66 and sometimes it is trying to do more of the Tim Burton like psychology thing and it is very bad at both of those but it mostly makes for a movie that feels very long and boring the thing Batman and Robin has going for it, which is a sentence most people don't say, is that it is tonally consistent 
in a way Batman Forever is not, and that is something that has always made me hate it less. Um, maybe that will change when we rewatch it. It's been a very long time for me. I do not believe I've ever seen Batman Forever or Batman and Robin on something other than VHS. Um, even though I know I watched them at some point in high school, but I think I just watched them on tape. We still had a tape player at that point. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't even have a widescreen TV until like 2008 or something. So like I, we still would have had our tube TV and stuff. Um, so that's kind of my memory of these. And, and I tried to go into Batman Forever with an open mind. Because there has even been, like, since Joel Schumacher died, some of the, like, counter-narrative of, like, oh, his Batman movie is fun, actually, for this that I'd seen on Twitter. I'm like, I don't really believe that, but I will try to go in with an open mind. And I will give the movie this. I do think the first ten minutes are the best ten minutes of this horrible movie. Because it's it, there's some mild amount of energy to it. Uh, and then it didn't just... And then there's no Jim Carrey yet. Um... And I, that was the most I enjoyed the movie, and then it goes off the fucking rails. Um, actually, I'm wrong. The best parts of this movie are anything with Nicole Kidman, because she's actually very funny in this. Um, not in all the right ways, but she knows what she's doing. The movie does not. Um, so anyway, yeah. I tried to go in with an open mind, but I had a more preconceived notion on this one, and I think I think I'm still right. I think this is, this is a bad movie in the nadir of 90s Batman. Uh, not the worst Batman thing ever, but the nadir of 90s Batman. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's it's. Let's talk about the '90s-ness of it all, because that is definitely a thing where, because we're now, I mean, we've moved into a position where like these are movies that came out when we were like alive, right? So yeah. most of the movies we talk about either were not out when we were alive or out when we were like infants, um, and like less than a year old. So now this is 1995, so we would have both been about three years old, um. So obviously too young to be like aware of the movie really, um, but like would have been children in like the after effects of the movie. And it, it's sort of like, you know, part of like that Batman stuff being suffused into the, the broader popular culture. Um, and so I think for some people that would then lend this, um, an air of like nostalgia for me, I feel like I have like anti nostalgia for the nineties. I feel like uh-huh. most nineties type stuff. Just, I, I just don't like, I just, it makes me like my stomach tighten up. I feel like almost embarrassed by it. Um, and it starts with this movie as soon as you see the font of the opening credits and it's already, I know the movie's going to be bad. Like you see the font for the opening credits and it's like, this is the same fucking font that G fucking savior did the made for TV Gundam movie made by a Canadian TV production company. It's the same font because every bad nineties movie has this like really fucking awful font. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, but it's just like, if you imagine a Hallmark movie in it's opening credits, it uses that font, right? Um, it's just immediately there is like a artificiality to like the sets. There is like a, I don't, you know, this is not my profession. I don't know how to describe it, but I think there's something about like the starkness of the lighting that makes everything feel fake. The dialogue doesn't know if it wants to be ironic or not. And so everything is like teetering on this edge of wanting to be ironic, but not really committing to be ironic. So it's like trying to do a 1960s Batman thing but doesn't know how to be ironic. And if you don't know how to be ironic, you can't do 1960s Batman humor. And like the pacing of the dialogue, the editing, the acting choices, like everything is just like, I feel like you watch five minutes of the movie and you can just anticipate everything of what this movie is going to be because it's just like, what is bad 90s movie Batman? It's just this movie, like step for step, cut for cut, beat for beat, line for fucking dialogue for line for fucking dialogue. 
everything is so predictably terrible in its 90s-ness that like it, I just had a very like kick in the stomach type reaction as soon as I got again five minutes into the movie and had to pause and like weep for Tommy Lee Jones and why he's even in this. <laughs> yes, no, I mean the '90s are a really weird period for cinema because I think at the beginning of the decade you have some good stuff in in kind of like the last gasp of of interesting '80s filmmakers. Uh, and people like Tim Burton sort of flowering and like uh, Tim Burton is pretty good throughout the 90s. He has a lot of interesting stuff. Um, so you have some of that. And in the late 90s, you have sort of this auteur indie resurgence where you get um, a lot of interesting directors sort of starting their careers like Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, and you have some auteurs like Stanley Kubrick um, making their final movies. And you have people like Terrence Malick who have not made something in a while coming back. And so you have this sort of art resurgence. But a lot of like the mid 90s and like what Hollywood itself is putting out is terrible. And I think it's a couple of things. Part of it, I think, is this like 80s hangover where the 80s, while they were happening, kind of made for themselves a certain like aesthetic cultural unity like there's a sense of like what the culture was in the mm -hmm. 80s that like movies were able to play off of and were also actively shaping and as you move into the 90s they lose a sense of that and kind of start working overtime where instead of movies sort of organically belonging to a culture or feel like feeling like they are kind of lightly having fun shaping it almost like a back to the future you get like shit like this that is like trying to be like hip with the kids yo but has no idea what to do because the 90s doesn't really have a obvious culture like there was a lot of like trying to do like this is the mtv version of batman because that's what the kids like yo but they don't know what that is the studios are run by like very out of touch people like warner brothers you have one of the lead producers is john peters who is the guy who in uh kevin smith has the famous story of him wanting to put a crazy robot spider in all of his movies until mm -hmm. he finally got it done with wild wild west which is another one of the Deers of 90s cinema yep. you have Tim Rothman over at Fox who is the guy who shepherds X-Men and like is the guy who won't let them use any of the costumes or like any of that stuff uh, and, and it requires movies to be like less than 100 minutes to like pack in a number of theater showings a day like the studios are just being holistically mismanaged. Um, even Disney is like running off the rails in late 90s. There's like no real clear like standout of who's doing this well in the 90s. And I think the other thing is this is when Hollywood starts really falling in love with IP, with intellectual property and trying to make like big IP movies. But this is the point where it's very clear nobody involved in making the movies knows the IP. It's all like focus groups and vague like this seems like something someone would like so you get wild wild west for some reason and you get um uh lost in space the movie with joey from friends that is oh like abysmally God. terrible yeah. um and like you know the like the best of the like the best of like those big 90s movies is something like independence day which i don't think is a great movie but is like at least somewhat entertaining and like is not like an IP driven thing but most of it is a lot of this like IP stuff where like you can tell nobody who worked on Batman Forever knew the first goddamn thing about Batman it was completely like trying to pander and figure out what people liked like the idea of hiring people who knew the material had not occurred to Hollywood yet that just wasn't a thing it was all trying to like feed the IP through the pre-existing machine and you got a lot of real shit and, and I would include, I, and I think X-Men, the original 2000 X-Men, belongs to that tradition very much. Yes. I think X2 is better, but I think the original X-Men belongs to that tradition, and I think Spider-Man 1 belongs to a slightly different tradition where you get, like, 
a real filmmaker who knows the material to do it. Um, and that's where you start to get a divergence because I think a lot of early 2000s cinema is like this as well, is very bad. The 2000s is a pretty bad decade for cinema also. But like all of that, the 80s hangover, the first blush of CGI where like nobody is good at using it, but they're using oh, it for yeah. some reason. Like in Batman Forever, you have the... We replaced the like beautiful matte paintings and miniatures from the Tim Burton movies with a terrible CGI fly through that isn't even as good as the CGI fly through in Batman Mask of the Phantasm. That was the exact thought I had. It is a very similar shot and it looks so much worse. And that's like throughout Batman Forever. And it's very common of like this era of films is like it's in this very awkward position where like CG type effects in like some of what they try to do with like green screen and blue screen and stuff to like try to expand sets or anything like that. It's like it's getting good enough that you can try to do it for most movies, but it's not good enough for it to be good. And so it's like this really awful period where it's like you're not getting like interesting, well done CG effects in most of these movies. Um, and like the fucking green screen masking of this movie just looks fucking terrible. Anytime they do it, it stands out so much. It's like compared to how luscious the practical effects work are in the Batman and Batman Returns, it's like such a severe downgrade where it doesn't have any of the benefits of the new effects technology that they're trying to use um and it only has all the drawbacks and you're losing all the benefit from the like miniatures and matte paintings and stuff that batman and batman returns were using um it is like yeah anytime you have a scene like that it just is so ugly in this movie like honestly probably the best movie from this like 90s ip cycle is men in black i was about to say the exact same thing and Men in Black is not a great movie. I think it is like a solid B. It is fun. I, if someone turns on Men in Black, I will watch it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's nowhere, it's it's not a Bad Max Fury Road. You know, it's not like, or a Thor Ragnarok or something like legitimately, like genuinely kind of new and fun. It's just fine. And like, but that's you know what I'll of... say about fucking Men in Black is that it knows what kind of character to get Tommy Lee Jones to yes, play. Yes. That's for fucking sure. Oh, it's super well cast. It's like that's that's a thing is it uses uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones really well. But like that's I just want to like establish for people like that was the ceiling of this era of Hollywood filmmaking. And like I do think there's something to be said for as homogenized as Hollywood is right now. The one benefit from that is that you generally do not get movies as disastrously bad. As these mid-90s thing. You will get bland. And you will sometimes get amazingly wrong-headed. But like Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad are all very, very bad. But just imagine an entire cinema where that's everything you were getting year after year. And that's the mid-90s. Yep. And that that is exactly what Batman Forever is like to its fucking core. It is that like every scene, every shot choice, the way yes. they write, every piece of dialogue. It is like and all that. And amped up because Joel Schumacher is one of the worst directors to do one of these. Like, you know, Men in Black, part of why it works is it's Barry Sonnenfeld who knows how to do one of these things. Um, and Tim Burton was a real director. Um, Batman Forever is one of the worst directed movies of all time. It is like, as I said before, a masterclass in bad directing. Um, and we will get into all of that. I detest looking at this ugly shit stain of a movie. Mm -hmm. um, but let's start at the beginning, Sean. Okay. <laughs> because Batman Forever, something that I had never fully realized, because I have not seen this movie in a long time, is when you watch the first 10 minutes of this movie, Batman Forever very loudly announces itself as an Adam West Batman movie. Like, yes. it is 
that is to its core what this movie is trying to do. Like that is the, the central reference material for Batman Forever is the Adam West Batman series. That is how it is. Like it uses Dutch angles all over the place. It doesn't know how to use Dutch angles, but it does use them all over the place. Uh, the Batman 66 knew how to use them, um, but it uses Dutch angles all over the place. It has this like crazy heightened tone. Um, it's trying to go for this kind of screwball comedy dialogue. Um, it's the got villains... like the neon lighting and like that kind of stuff it's trying to do in places. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, and like the way Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey are directed, like literally just like dancing around the edges of the frame is totally a takeoff on the Batman 66 villains. Um, it, that is, that is what this movie is doing. Like it, 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 and especially that first scene is like the most concentrated burst of it because it is just a like big budget version of an, of a Batman 66 plot. Um, but like it really hits you like oh my god that's what it's doing and one of the things i find fascinating about man about batman forever is that if you like adam west batman and you want to understand why did batman 66 work so well you need to watch batman forever yeah. because in all the ways it fails it will teach you how batman 66 succeeded and part of that is batman 66 is a show fundamentally built on good writing it is a satire it is a parody. It kind of goes between those poles of parody and satire. But it is gag-based, and it is witty, and it is, like, deconstructive in ways. And, like, not every episode is equally great, but there is a genuine, like, wit and intelligence behind the gags that are, like, very constructed in Batman 66. It is something to study for good comedy writing. Batman Forever fundamentally does not understand that. A, in that the writing is just bad. The first line of this movie is Batman getting in the Batmobile and Alfred saying, can I persuade you to take a sandwich, sir? And Batman going, I'll get drive through And, like, that's what passes for comedy in this movie. That's, like, what they think is comedy. But mostly it doesn't even attempt the writing and it is just loud and it is characters shouting and it is Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones laughing maniacally and dancing around the corners of the frame and then a bunch of canted angles and, like, visual soup and it is amazing how much this movie does not understand the thing it is trying to adapt. It could not understand Batman 66 less if it tried. Yeah, and like part of what's going on, and you, you animated this earlier, is that it is trying to both do Batman 66, and then it is also, it has this, like, the refuges of the Tim Burton Batman style in there. Like, it's clear that Val Kilmer is trying to do a vaguely Michael Keaton-esque thing. It's like they're yeah. going for vaguely that kind of Bruce Wayne in particular. Um, and they have, like, the the dark, tragic background of, like, they pull some of, like, the flashbacky type material and imagery from Dark Knight Returns in terms of, like, here's, like, the big bat, and here's, like, him thinking about the pearls from his mother's necklace. Like, it's pulling that material and is, like, doing some of that stuff. Um, and then all the stuff with Robin also exists in that realm where it's like trying to play that stuff very straight. Um, and you can't do that. You can't have something that is only a satire or is only trying to play in the realm of satire half of the time if it's a movie. Like it just doesn't work because you need to have a consistent tone and a consistent command of like the, the viewpoint of the film. Um, and it's, it's usage of humor and it's perspective and what it's trying to do with that humor and trying to do with its irony and satire, that has to be consistent. If it's not consistent, the whole thing breaks down because it is so hard to tell in any given moment, 
is this trying to be funny? Is this trying to be ironic or is it not? And and it feels like most of the time, particularly anything involving Batman, it's it's really not. Like it's just like here's dialogue that if you gave it to like Adam West and you directed it in the Batman 66 way, it wouldn't be great, but you could see how the dialogue would function. But when it's played as this like actors playing it as a like kind of bad 90s romance scene with Nicole Kidman being the only one who's at least like pushing it a little bit over the top. Um, but when you're like doing it that and it's like that kind of 90s style acting that doesn't have that level of like sort of like wink to the camera element to it, it all just comes across as so groan inducingly bad that it is like it, it really just feels like you're getting kicked in the face by like every line of dialogue when they're trying to do the puns or they're trying to do some sort of like wink and nod like sexual innuendo or something but they're not actually winking and nodding and it doesn't feel like they're actually being ironic there's nothing more painful than that oh yeah it it is bad um that's going to be the constant refrain for this movie yeah i think we need to talk about val kilmer here because it's tough I don't know quite how to analyze his performance, but I do know that so much in this movie turns on it. And, like, I don't think there's any version of Batman Forever directed by Joel Schumacher that is good, but I do think there is a possible version of this movie where the main performance is better calibrated and it clicks a little more. And the problem is, I think Val Kilmer is really stranded in the middle of this thing. Like, this is a movie that has no direction for him, and no clear sense of what they want to do with Batman. And it is this core that is just fundamentally missing from the movie. Because there are times when they want him to be Michael Keaton. Where he is pretty straight faced but like a little goofy around the edges. Which Michael Keaton was really good at. Um, and there are times when they want him to be Adam West. And I think Val Kilmer could pull either of those off. I especially think he could pull the Adam West thing off because there are moments where he is in the bat suit where I do find Val Kilmer kind of funny in this. I think particularly in the beginning, there's just a couple of moments like Batman taking the like hearing aid and doing the thing on the safe where I can kind of imagine Adam West doing that and making it funny and the way Val Kilmer plays it works for me. But like when he is just Bruce Wayne, it is such a stranded performance because the direction is clearly just be quiet and bland and stoic and it doesn't work in either direction because that's not how adam west plays it adam west is a straight man only in relation to like the size of a caesar romero performance but adam west is giving a thoroughly goofy performance like his intonation mm -hmm. his patterns of speech the way he delivers lines the pauses he gives it is a very finely calibrated comedic performance and that is why it works off of these crazy things. Um, and Adam and Val Kilmer in this is also often being put up against crazy shit, like Nicole Kidman's super horny psychologist lady. And you've got, you know, crazy Edward Nigma, and you've got Two-Face and all of that stuff. And you could see how a sort of calibrated comedic performance could be sort of playing tennis with this and, like, taking the comedy and then throwing it back and back and forth. But instead, Val Kilmer is just a wet rag on screen, sort of taking all of these, like, hits, and nothing happens. 
And what's so fucking weird about that is Val Kilmer could do it. I like, you just know, looking at some of his other work, I don't know if you've seen some of these movies, Sean, but I would recommend to viewers like Top Secret, which is the, probably the best of the Zucker Abrams Zucker movies, which uh, like they made Airplane and stuff. And Top Secret is by far their zaniest. That's the movie that is a parody of Elvis rock musicals, but set in World War II. It's very bizarre, but Val Kilmer like, his comedic performance in that, if you transplanted this into Batman Forever, it would be a significantly better movie. And then on the other side of that, um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a great underrated movie. That was the rebirth of Robert Downey Jr. That's what got him Iron Man. Val Kilmer is in that, and he's very funny in that. Like, it is not that Val Kilmer is a humorless, wet noodle actor, but something in how he is being directed has just utterly stranded him in this movie. And it is a weird, lifeless Bruce Wayne... And a Batman who I don't think they've directed in any particular way to be a take on Batman. And so whatever the movie is doing in any scene, its main actor is totally out of whack with what they are doing. And it is one of the main ways this movie just is lifeless. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Because for me, like my main reference point for Val Kilmer, and this is a movie he would have been just fresh off of his tombstone and him as Doc Holliday in that movie, which he's really like that movie is like very kind of messy. But he's really, really good as Doc Holliday. And you can see, like, there's, there is, if you wanted your tortured Bruce Wayne character, like, I mean, that's what the Doc Holliday character basically is. Um, I mean, if you then have him also be addicted to alcohol and slowly dying, then that's what that character is. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's like you've got, you could actually absolutely have Val Kilmer play a really interesting Batman. Um, but yes, the way that they sort of position him in this movie is this, like, he's this, like, fulcrum that like doesn't actually exist in either tone space or something like it's just like he's not particularly grim even though they again there's like a lot of scripted material in this movie that is telling you that it is trying to be about batman's like tortured psyche being torn between being bruce wayne and being batman and repressed memories he has of the death of his parents like you never ever feel it but you have to always keep in mind that like that is what the movie is telling you that it is trying to be about um, but one of the reasons you never feel it is because that's not really like what it feels like Val Kilmer's performance is like drawing you towards for, for most of the film. And then when you're trying to have the gag stuff, I mean, he's, he doesn't ever really like execute on the gag stuff because they don't give Batman the material to do it. They don't have a take on the character that exists in a gag type world in the way that the 1966 Batman does or like other versions like the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon that has a relatively similar tone where you make Batman exaggerated in how much he is this, like, kind of cliche superhero, like, b Boy Scout kind of character. Like, that's the comedic Batman character, and he's not that at all. Like, there's never really that sense of that character um, here. And so it's just, when you have your main character, your lead, the character the movie's named after, just feel like he exists in some sort of, like, weird negative space that's never really, like, in the film. Just, like, the whole thing kind of crumbles around him. Yeah, and I think you take that and then combine it with narratively, this script is just fucked. Yeah. It is, it's not a three-act movie, and it can't be a three-act movie because a three-act movie requires in some way an active protagonist who wants something. And Batman is the most passive character in this movie. Batman never does a single thing proactively in this film. 
he only comes out when they light up the bat signal and they need him. And sometimes they light up the bat signal and he doesn't come out. There's a whole stretch in the middle of the movie where for some reason he just lets Two-Face and, and Riddler do their thing and he just doesn't go be Batman. But mostly the structure of this movie is Two-Face, later joined by Riddler, comes out and causes chaos. Batman comes out and fights them. Batman usually loses. They run away. And then Batman goes back to his cave and broods or he goes and fucks Nicole Kidman. Um, but like... It's always because something else is happening to him. Even at the end, it's Robin is the one who basically has to talk him into going and saving the doctor and like ending this. And so Batman is just a, a limp noodle on screen. Um, and it's like Batman does not have to be the most active or dynamic character in your Batman movie. Batman Returns taught us that. But like he has to like Batman Returns when he sees the penguin is doing shit he goes back to the cave and like researches penguin and he drives his Batmobile slowly by the library while penguin researches because he's investigating there's not a goddamn smidgen of that in this he is completely passive and so he is like you're right Sean it's like a Batman movie where Batman is a black hole from which light does not emanate yeah no it is it's this really weird phenomena where the most active thing he does in the movie is when he just randomly decides 30 minutes from the movie being over that he's just going to stop being Batman. He has like one yes. of the most inexplicable scenes with Robin. <laughs> um, we'll go into it in depth uh, when we get to like that whole sequence. But he just sort of decides to stop being Batman. There's no real reason given for it. And then like 10 minutes after that, he decides to start being Batman again. But like you, it, it, that whole sequence exposes one of the main problems with Batman in this movie, which is that like, does Batman care about stopping the criminals? Because he, sh he should, and it feels like he's supposed to, and you go into this movie with like the general understanding that that's what the Batman character is. He is a dude who dresses up as a bat and fights criminals as a way to like work through his trauma or whatever like motivation you want to assign to it. That's like fundamentally what he is and what he does. And yet in this movie, it just feels like he kind of does that occasionally. But the fact that there's like this unprecedented crime spree that happens with Two-Face and Riddler as a montage in this middle of this movie where they're robbing banks and like fucking stealing jewels and all this shit to construct a criminal empire. And then Edward Nigma out of nowhere creates a multi-billion corporation that then has this magical device that Bruce Wayne knows, well, this is a thing that can like, what's the terrible line he has? It's like, if you can insert images into the brain, what's to stop you from extracting images out of the brain? Um, and so he knows that there's some crazy shit going on and yet Batman doesn't give a fuck. Like Batman doesn't do anything about it unless Nicole Kidman is in danger at the party, basically. It's like, it's so bizarre that he's never pursuing these crimes. He's never pursuing Two-Face and Riddler actively other than when it's like, oh, I guess it's the climax of the movie. Let's go to their island and fight them for like 10 minutes and have it be over. It's just you don't ever understand why Batman is doing the things that he's doing in this movie because it feels like they didn't create a character. It's just a thing that happens sometimes and it's just named Batman. Yeah, and I mean, this is a problem with the 90s Batman movies in general. The first Tim Burton movie does not really know what to do with Batman. This movie has no idea what to do with Batman. Batman and Robin is nominally about Batman accepting family into his life, but it's very bad and George Clooney is the worst Batman. So like... Batman Returns is the only one that has, like, I think, a real vision of the character. It's it's part of the reason I think Batman Begins was such a revelation when it came out. Because it was the first live-action Batman movie that was about Batman. Like, uh -huh. 
like Christian Bale is the protagonist of that film and like unambiguously there's not something else fighting for attention that movie has a focus on that um and and wasn't throwing audiences for a weird loop um but yeah so it's weird I I don't think Val Kilmer is the absolute worst live action Batman I do think that's George Clooney we'll get to that but like and, and there are there are just there's like moments here where I can see the spark of something but for the most part it is a really dead performance that I don't think is his fault it's like because the movie's dead around him but like it's one of the it's one of the things that I think makes Batman Forever so lifeless as a film absolutely yeah it's it's uh it's a big problem when Batman isn't Batman in your Batman movie the most Batman comes to life in this film is when he is opposite Dr. Chase Meridian and I do want to talk about that character for a second Sean yeah I'll give the movie this it does not have the problem of Batman 89 of introducing a grand epic romance 30 minutes before the end. The movie does foreground that that's what this movie is going to be about because she is in the second scene of the movie. After he stops Two-Face, they flirt, and she basically is undressing before his eyes like, I really want to fuck Batman. Um, and I do kind of appreciate the insanity of just building an entire character where they're only trait their only personality their only motivation the only thing we know about them is that they really want to fuck the guy in the bat suit that's what chase meridian wants it is that horrible psychiatrist trope of psych of women psychiatrists being sexually interested in what they study that you get in a lot of really bad male-dominated media that's what chase meridian is every scene between her and batman is just about how they're gonna fuck that's all of it, it, you can't even call it innuendo. It's not innuendo in the way, like... I know it's very overt in Batman Returns with, like, Catwoman, but it is technically innuendo in puns. There's none mm -hmm. of that in this. She's talking about, like, oh, look at all the leather on your chest, and, like, we should do some BDSM stuff, Batman. And, like, that's the whole thing. And Nicole Kidman, to her credit, is the best performance in this movie because she's the only one who seems to have gotten the note and been like, okay, my One Direction is horny, I'm gonna run with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna play that one note, and she does it, and and it is mildly entertaining. But the quality of the writing is so bad, and Joel Schumacher's direction in cinematography is so flat, and the lighting is so bad that every scene between the two of them, if it was not Hollywood stars Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman, you would assume those are the openings to a porno. There is just no yeah. world where you would watch any interaction between Batman and Chase Meridian, where you would not go oh, okay, in three minutes they're going to take off their clothes and fuck in front of the camera because that is exactly what this looks like. That's how Joe Sh Joel Schumacher shoots. That might even be an insult to some porn, but like the quality of the writing, that's exactly what this is. And they don't, and honestly at a certain point it's weird when they don't fuck on screen because that's exactly what those scenes are building up to. Yeah, I agree that there's something that like it is, she is both like feels like the most successful character in the movie in some weird way. But then also it's just like, but when like the whole end of the movie and like the conclusion of Batman's character arc, if you want to call it that, the <laughs> thing that the movie, because the thing about the movie's dialogue is that it is like so unbelievably thuddingly like direct, like it is just people saying directly like this is the theme of the film um that you know you can't help but like you know acknowledge that it is a thing that the movie is literally just sitting down and telling you this movie is about how batman wants to be able to resolve the personalities of bruce wayne and batman which is just what basically he says 
Um, but when part of that is supposed to be hinged on his like relationship with this character, when her character is just, I want to fuck Batman, and that's it, that's the only piece of characterization she's given the whole movie, other than when she actually is, has the opportunity to fuck Batman, she's like, you know what, maybe I'd rather fuck Bruce Wayne, and then Bruce Wayne gets a big goofy smile on his face. Um, which is probably the best shot in the movie. It Batman is the funniest. Turns around yes. and gets this stupid fucking grin on its face. It's like, but it's like I just can't invest in this being some like life changing, perspective altering, like deep personal emotional attachment he has to this woman because they want to fuck. Like, they, there has to be some other character dynamic there that has to bring these characters together that is beyond just they're horny for each other, um, and it becomes a serious problem in the climax of this movie that's like that's the only thing the relationship really amounted for um and is it is like i mean it is the given motivation for why batman chooses to stop being batman for all five minutes is just because he's like well i achieved my goal i'm gonna have sex with a hot lady so that's what i really guess he needed the whole time and so now i no longer need to be batman i've i've resolved my my psychoses by having sex um it's yeah it's it's, it's, it's the most successful character, but it's not a good character. So, no, and that's a good way to put it, because it is the it, the most coherent thing in the movie, where you can, like, say what it's going for, is the sex stuff, basically. And, like, that is the thing about Joel Schumacher, is he's a very horny director. And that is, like, just true across his movies. And, you know, there is a significant element of camp. Joel Schumacher was a, a out-and-proud gay man. And, you know, I do think part of his interesting legacy is that he is someone who built a lot of camp into his work. And, you know, camp as a thing in Hollywood, the entire um, conceptualization of camp as a thing that sort of comes into being with, like, early MGM Hollywood musicals is the idea of, you know, departments or units at film studios where a lot of closeted, because they had to be at the time, gay people were working. But in those communities, they could be out. And they would sort of do sort of satirical um, undressings of heterosexual normativity in their movies. Um, this is probably most obvious in things like Vincenzo Minnelli's movies, like Meet Me in St. Louis and stuff, where people have done a lot of like queer theory on this about like the camp in those movies is an element where the movie is both sincerely telling like a heterosexual romance, but also through the style of the musical and some of the dress and the color choices and stuff, sort of camping it up to a degree where it's also sort of making fun of it. And I think Joel Schumacher is is in this legacy in his work. And there is certainly an element of um, adding camp to Batman in a way that's very different than the camp of 60s Batman because it is a very, like, sexualized camp. Uh, I counted the third shot of this movie after the, like, weird opening credits is Batman's dick. It is a big shot of his giant bulging cod piece, which for the most part you don't actually see in the movie because uh, Joel Schumacher for some reason shoots everything in like extreme close-ups and you never see stuff. But mm. you do get extreme close-ups of his dick several times in that giant bulging cod piece. And at the end of the movie when he suits up in the new suit, um, it goes through all the pieces of the suit and then stops on his mottled like rubber ass for like 10 seconds. Uh, and of course they will do that way more in Batman and Robin. And there's a lot of like sort of queer oriented camp in this movie and it is something interesting to pull apart but i think the thing that separates joel schumacher from like an actual interesting artist is not making that into any kind of like systemic interesting like critique or story and it also just kind of the movie gets bogged down in its own horniness by not being able to escape that and like come up with any actual themes to say with it um and it's a significant limitation of the movie 
Yeah, it's it never feels wholly incorporated into what the film is or what it's trying to be or its message or anything like that. It's just sort of here's just some like weird horny scenes. Um, that and that's like and that's just like what it feels like it ultimately amounts to. Um, yeah. So it just it and then it compromises elements that need to be like narrative build up or payoff. Um, because it's so distracted by trying to be horny all the time it's not giving the characters actual character dynamics. Yeah. And in the places where you could do something interesting, like exploring homoeroticism with Batman and Robin, it's like a completely sexless, like they barely share the screen together. It's just not an element of the movie at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is weird. Um, I think we should continue breaking down the characters, Sean. Yeah. Um, should we do the villains? Okay. Yeah. We can talk about the villains. Which one Which do you one? want to ta tackle, Jonathan? They're both bad. But let's start with the better one. I love Tommy Lee Jones. And I know you do, too. Yes. Uh -huh. He's a wonderful, wonderful, versatile actor. And, you know, let it not be said that Tommy Lee Jones cannot be a ham at times. And he has hamminess to certain performances. And he is actually a very good actor in terms of, like, surgically using ham for certain purposes in certain movies you know he is also an actor of extraordinary like subtlety and nuance at times as you see in movies like no country for old men um and even like playing with that persona in stuff like men in black you know um and of course the fugitive is like kind of all sides of him in in one really really great star making performance how the fuck they chose him for two-face in this and then decided Two-Face is just the Joker. Because that's just... He's just the Joker. Riddler is also the Joker. This is just a movie with two Jokers in it. Um, and that they would basically just ask him to go to Eleven and be full-on scene-chewing ham all the time. And, like, he throws himself at it. This is not a low-energy, disengaged performance the way I kind of feel Jack Nicholson is in original Batman. But I also see just kind of a hint of misery in his eyes. Like, he wants to die doing this movie, which we've later learned is basically true. Um, and it is a real mystery. He's not bad in the movie, and it does not annoy me to the level that, like, Jim Carrey does. But, God, it is a missed opportunity. And some of it is also just, like, the absurd, terrible makeup and costuming they choose for him and the just simplistic cartoon version of Two-Face. It is... It is holistically bad around an actor I really deeply love, and it kind of hurts. Yeah, like, that's just how I feel about it. It's like, because again, I obviously knew that Tommy Lee Jones was Two-Face in this movie. I had a sense of, like, probably it's not very good. Um, and I knew that it was, like, silly and over the top and all of that. But there has always been a part of me that, like, if you forget what Batman Forever is, and you just say Tommy Lee Jones plays Two-Face in a Batman movie, that sounds fucking awesome. That sounds yes. so good. In a good Batman movie, that would be so fucking sick. Especially, like, Tommy Lee Jones from, like, this period. You could just imagine, like, a really, really great performance that sounds like a scary-as-fuck Two-Face um, that I would not want to mess with. Um, it's, like, it's... it's If you went with a, like, legit attempt at the character, that would be great casting. But when you see what they want the character to be, why would you get Tommy Lee Jones? Like, it's... It's so ridiculous. Like, it because, well, I think, yeah, Tommy Lee Jones definitely, like, he is versatile. He ha he can have that range. He can do some of the more, like, the cheesy, campy, over-the-top stuff when he needs to at times. 
it's also like so far away from like the core wheelhouse of like the kinds of Tommy Lee Jones performances you think of, which is like at its core, it's the like world weary at home, like down at home Southern lawman, right? Like that's like the core heart of the Tommy Lee Jones character. Like for me, epitomized by his role in No Country for Old Men feels like you might as well have just named the character Tommy Lee Jones because it's how much that character is Tommy Lee Jones. And when that's your like, the, that's your like core of what he does that makes him such a great actor is like finding the subtleties and the nuance and like the warmth in the heart and also kind of like the intensity of that kind of character and that kind of performance. It is so far away from what they're wanting from this character, which is just a, a, a homicidal maniac who is bouncing off the walls and is super goofy. And it's like, that's the only thing the character is. There's no, there's no real attempt at doing some sort of like duality thing with him. There's no like, here's Harvey Dent and here's Two-Face. Um, it's just, here's a man who has the makeup that makes him look vaguely like a Two-Face character. Um, and he's got the coin. And that's it. I watched those first five minutes of, of Tommy Lee Jones giving that performance and I had to pause the movie and look up. Was there something else he did? Was he in like some sort of massive bomb right before Batman Forever that he like lost a bunch of movie? Is there some sort of like hidden side of Tommy Lee Jones where he's like been in a bunch of weird like kids movies where he was doing this? Because it's like it's very much a like kids movie kind of character that they're giving him to play. And it's like, no, there's nothing explaining it. I don't know why this ended up happening. Like, it feels like it's like a weird mirror universe, Tommy Lee Jones. That's a madman who came over to our world to be in one movie. And then he left. Um, it's, it's just inexplicable. It's an utterly inexplicable, like casting choice in like character performance to have Tommy Lee Jones do what he does in this movie. Yeah. I mean, they have no take on the character other than he's the Joker. And like, I mean, this is a big problem with like Batman media in a lot of ways and like adaptations and stuff where like a lot of characters just get boiled down to an essence of this is just another version of the Joker. Mm -hmm. um, and like, that's basically what they do with Two-Face here. They pay lip service to the thing with the coin because they're setting up the end of the movie where Batman defeats him very easily. Um, and they have the thing where like he's got this divided like suit and face and then his apartment is divided but there's nothing beyond that it's just it's purely aesthetic there's no yeah. like substance to it at all the character has no interiority and his this is one of the funniest things in terms of this being an awful fucking script is his entire motivation is based on something that happens off screen before the movie starts yeah like they they show it briefly in like tv footage that bruce wayne is reviewing but other than that like, the entire Two-Face origin, they're just like, the thing that he is acting on, like, the plot of this movie is Two-Face is mad at Batman and wants to kill Batman. And he wants to kill Batman by getting Batman to come out from the shadows. So that's why he keeps doing, like, weird terrorist attacks. That's the plot. And it is motivated by something that is never really shown or ex explicated on screen. So he just has no interiority. His motivation is completely flat. There's no attempt at any kind of depth or anything. Like, coming off of Batman Returns, I mean, God, this is just so in the other direction from what that movie tried doing with its villains, you know? Um, and yeah, and he's just a big goof. And then they pair him with another big goof. And it's, it's just inexplicable. It's like they picked the name Two-Face and the name Riddler and then just did two Jokers. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and one of the really bizarre things about Two-Face in this movie is that it feels like the movie wants to have Riddler be the main villain because they do the whole origin and they dramatize his origin story and all that. 
Um, whereas Two-Face is just, like, a character that exists. Like, I was so shocked that he was just there in Two-Face in the first five minutes of the movie. Because I, in my head, I just assumed that they did the Two-Face origin story at some point, and they just don't. Um, and so he feels like an utterly unmotivated character, and they want Riddler, because they did the origin, to be the main character, the main villain. But Two-Face is the only villain who has a connection to both Batman and Robin. And so he actually feels like, narratively, is really the main villain. He's the one who's pursuing Batman all the time. He's the one that Robin wants revenge on. So most of, like, the Batman side of the movie, in terms of Batman dealing with villains, is all focused on Two-Face. And Riddler's just sort of there. And it's this really bizarre thing where it's like... Why would you do this? Like, how? why would you choose to have this be where you'd, like, split your villains? Where you put on the villain perspective part of the story all your all your eggs basically in the Riddler basket. But from the Batman side of the story, put all your eggs in the Two-Face basket. And then you end up with no interesting dynamic with the villains and, like, a plot that just sort of spins out of control, like, 30 minutes into the movie. Because it, it, it can't sort of figure out which villain it wants to take sort of the lead. And it's it's really bizarre. No, Riddler is in a different movie. Uh, like, Riddler does not show up on screen calling himself Riddler in the suit for 55 fucking yeah. minutes. And for those 55 fucking minutes, he is just in a different movie. He has one point of intersection with Bruce Wayne, and that's it. And otherwise, he isn't doing anything. He isn't scheming anything. He finally introduces himself to Two-Face because he wants Two-Face to help him steal money. But, like, all Two-Face wants to get out of this is killing Batman. And, like, 20 minutes later, Two-Face is like, you're taking too long. I'm going to try to kill Batman again. And so there's no reason for these guys to be together. It is so weird. No, as you say, no one's taking the lead. Like, you know, I'm sure... I know you and I have slightly different points of view on The Dark Knight when we get to that movie and, like, how it uses Two-Face and some of this stuff. But... It's very clear who the Dark Knight sees as the lead villain. It's the yeah. Joker, and Two-Face is subsumed by that. Like, Two-Face is something the Joker creates, and so the Joker, even when he is not on screen, when Two-Face is on screen, Joker is still the villain of that scene. And, mm -hmm. like, that is a very smart move that movie makes, and it allows it to have its multiple villains. This is... This is this is much worse than Spider-Man 3, but this is more in the Spider-Man 3 vein of having three villains and no sense of how they fit together. Yeah, no, I mean, even Spider-Man 3 at least has, like, Harry to pin it on for Harry right. to feel like he's, like, the emotional core of the villain side, and it gets diluted by the other villains, but at least has that. This doesn't have any, like, any, like, character relationship that feels significant between any of the characters, I guess. I realized that's where I was going to contain it to the villains, but it's just true about all the characters other than Alfred, who who's the best part of the movie. Alfred is really good in this movie. Like... I, and I don't know if it's just because Michael Goh is always that good, and so when he's the only good thing left, you like him more. But the only scenes in this movie that come close to working for me are moments with Alfred. Uh, yeah. Michael Goh was such a good Alfred. Yeah, it's like Alfred is like the one character in this movie that I'm like, this is a human being who like cares about other people, and he has conversations with them, and his relationships with other people cause changes in yeah. like their perspective on the world, which is just what like dialogue is between characters in a story, but like he's like the one who has that and it like functions appropriately and it works and i'm like oh my god alfred why can't you just why can't this whole movie just be from your perspective like why can't we just be with alfred and like people are coming in and out of the mansion and like talking about weird shit and then alfred goes and makes tea and we just have that drama be a much better version of the story yes it would all right let's talk about him uh -huh. i have a question i have a question sean yeah i'm gonna piss off a lot of listeners i'm sure with this but i have a question 
what was wrong with people in the 90s that they liked Jim Carrey? What lead-based paint were people huffing on a daily basis to kill enough brain cells to the state that they would then go to a Jim Carrey movie and guffaw like fucking cows over the least funny person who has maybe ever been in movies. I detest Jim Carrey in his comedies. I fucking detest it. I Some of his movies are better than others, and I know that. But when I see, and I know it is, like, Batman Forever is particularly bad. But his mm-hmm. thing where basically he would, like, they would set up a camera in front of him. And I guess the director and the staff and the crew would just walk the fuck away and let him do his thing in front of the camera and just guffaw and 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 just grimace and like do all his like weird facial distortions and shout and just go and all of that fucking shit. And that's Jim Carrey. And apparently this was the biggest box office draw of the early 90s. What the fuck was wrong with people? How goddamn stupid were we that we thought this was something to build a movie around? Yeah, I don't know if I I have the level of passion you do in the hate of Jim Carrey, but I don't like him. Like, it's, yeah. I mean, because this, I was just looking up his filmography, and in 1994, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber all came out in that one movie. What a fucking pox on comedy 1994 is. It's like, man, yeah, like, I, I agree that there's something that I've never really understood um like what the appeal is um like i've never i've just never enjoyed any of his comedic performances at all um it's the kind of thing where it feels like you know i don't particularly like adam sandler that much either in his comic performances but this feels like a low-grade version of adam sandler is what like jim carrey's performances feel like in terms of like going for a 90s style comedy um but adam sandler is is on a scale to me like yeah because adam sandler is a great actor like yes. I just don't think you can argue that when you look at something like Uncut Gems or Punch Drunk Love or or some of the better comedies he's done, he is a r- ridiculously talented actor. He is a very talented stand-up comedian, um, and some of his comedies are better than others. I-, I think generally he's he's engaging in those, and then in some of them, obviously he's awful, and he has this like the rage-based version of his character that's just kind of shouting without direction can be very annoying. But like Adam Sandler exists on a scale. Jim Carrey is either like on or he's off. And and there are there are times in Jim Carrey performances where I get it. Like I will admit like the recent Sonic the Hedgehog movie is a reasonably well calibrated Jim Carrey for my tastes. I think that one is is like pitched at enough of a direction that I'm okay with it. I do think there should have been less of him in the movie, but like I'm okay with it. But like Batman Forever is just the worst side of him because it is it is all of his worst, loudest, most garish, stupid tendencies dialed up to 11 with nothing that possibly redeems Jim Carrey as an actor, which does exist in some other movies. And and that's all it is. And, like, he's out of a different movie. He's just doing his own thing. I don't even know if he, like, literally shares screen space with anything other than Tommy Lee Jones because it's just when the camera is on him, it's just them letting him run and riff and do his thing without any direction there's no there's no sense of building a character there's no story going on here it is just him goofing and i just i really do look at our culture in the 90s because that's a lot of his movies like of all those ones you named i think dumb and dumber is probably the best like 
And I don't think that's a great movie, but like, I don't know, he and Jeff Daniels, at least he's playing off someone. He's like both giving and getting uh, instead of just tossing shit out at the audience. Uh, And that's all this is. And it's awful. It's one of the worst comic book movie villains. Like, it annoys me in the same way like Jesse Eisenberg in Batman v Superman annoys me. Yeah, it is just this... You're right. There's just this sense of you turn the camera on and then you just kind of let him do his thing and you don't think about it. It just sort of feels like this like lazy attempt at a character where you're not trying to put in the requisite work to get the character work. And you just instead have, here's this dude who was like on Saturday Night Live and people thought was funny. And he did a bunch of other comedies that people thought were funny for whatever reason. So let's just have him do his like a goofy bullshit, like weird facial expressions and run around and shout and do that. And not really try to construct a character around it. Uh, and it is exceedingly obnoxious every single moment he's on screen. And then it also, this is something I had kind of forgotten. It serves the basis for one of the other worst villains in superhero movies. In that it is, I had forgotten that, right, Electro in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is just this character. They just take the exact same concept. Um, obviously not necessarily the like goofy part of the Jim Carreyness of it. But like the character idea of... Here's this like mad scientist dude who's obsessed with the hero character. Um, and for this, it's Bruce Wayne. For Spider-Man 2, it's Spider-Man. And this is like spurned by the character in the first act. And so they become a villain, which is also just like a very weak nothing kind of motivation that just doesn't. I mean, one, it has nothing to do with anything else in the movie. It doesn't touch on the like, everybody wears a mask and we all have two lives and blah, blah, blah. Like whatever that shit is. That Two-Face doesn't either. Other than that he, like, the visual design of the character does. But at least the visual design of the character does. There's nothing about Riddler that touches on anything else that the movie's talking about. And yet they invest so much time in this character. You have multiple scenes that he's the only person in the scene. Um, and you just watch him do his goofy bullshit. And you're right, like, he, the only other characters he shares scenes with are Bruce Wayne at the very beginning... Two-Face in a bunch of moments, and then there's, like, one of Two-Face's wives that he shares a scene with, also with Bruce Wayne at, like, the midpoint of the movie at that party. But other than that, he just exists on this weird island and is just annoying. And that's, like, the whole sort of character they've created for the Riddler. Um, And then occasionally he sends riddles that also uh, don't have anything more substantive than the ridiculous riddles in the Batman 66 version of the character, but they don't really play it as a joke. And so you're left wondering why would you do this why would you have the riddles literally culminate in nothing the answers to the individual riddler riddles don't have anything to do with each other at all and so even the riddle part of the character just feels like you just sort of spent that not even on a joke or to have like a fun here's like a brain teaser thing that makes the the characters feel clever it's just you just sort of expend it on on a nothing plot development at the end of the movie and that's it Uh, It's worse than that. Like, the riddles in Batman 66 are actually extremely clever because what they do is they build these nonsense questions and then Batman and Robin will go off on these insane tangents of thought and, like, come up with an answer that they think sounds natural and that's the joke is that there's these insane thought tangents. These are, like, the riddles you would get on, like, a juice carton and they would print on the bottom and, like, just very obvious, like, riddle... Like, it feels like they, they, they wouldn't have gone on Amazon in 1995. But they, they, today you would go on Amazon and, like, buy a book of riddles for kids and then do that. And then they put those in the movie and the characters just straight-faced answer the riddles. At the end, somehow they realize it's all adding up to Edward Nigma, And then he goes and finds Edward Nigma. So they're not even attempting for something comedic. But they're also not attempting for anything, like, actually riddly 
and like smart about the character which is like that's how the animated series and the video games do it where like he's actually like creating puzzles and shit right um, and mm-hmm. you have to think about it so it's neither they just they look at like both paths you can take for the Riddler and they choose he's the Joker but with Jim Carrey and then he's going to send a couple of serial killer riddles um, it's dumb it's so bad they just don't choose anything other than Jim Carrey will play the character and we don't have to script anything because he'll just do his own fucking thing yeah, like I've I've actually pulled up the dialogue from the scene where they solve the riddle because I want to read through this for you, Jonathan. Because like I I was like offended that they did this because I feel like the bare minimum is that the answers to all the individual riddles add up to the thing, the clue that Batman uses to solve it. Um, or you do a gag if it's supposed to be a comedy movie and you do your like weird sort of like free association thing that the '66 Batman movie does and create these like ridiculous answers. Um, but instead, what they do is they put together things from the questions and in the individual clues, not the answers. So here's what they say. This is Batman opens up the last clue. We're five letter little items of an everyday sort. You'll find us all in a tennis court. In A-E-I-O-U. Vowels. That is, that is just a line of dialogue from the Batman 66 show if you, if you read it that way, but they don't read it that way. Like, it's like you're already... That's not an answer to this riddle that makes, like... That feels like it has anything to do with the fucking riddle. Alfred says, Not entirely unclever, sir, but what do a clock, a match, chess pawns, and vowels have in common? What do these riddles mean? So those, clock, match, chess piece, vowels. Those are the answers to the individual riddles. This is what Batman says. Every riddle has a number in the question, and they arrived at this order. 13, 1, 8, and 5. 13, 1, 8, and 5. What do they mean? Perhaps letters of the alphabet? Of course, 13 is M. One would be A, eight would be H, and five would be E. M A H E. Perhaps one and eight are eighteen. Eighteen is R. M R E. How about Mr. E? Mystery? And another name for mystery? Enigma. Mr. E. Nigma. Edward Nigma. Stickley suicide was obviously a computer generated forgery. You really are quite bright despite what people say. That dialogue is just fucking dialogue you could rip from the fucking Batman 66 from like a bad Riddler episode from the 66 show. It's no more rooted in some sort of logic or clever twist or puzzle or anything. It is just like, here's this ridiculous like line we draw from, well, let's just randomly pick the numbers. Well, the numbers don't actually add up to anything. Well, what if these two numbers were just connected even though there's no reason for one and eight to be connected? Well, then that makes Mr. E. Oh, Mr. E, that sounds like mystery. And it also could be like Mr. E, like Mr. Enigma. Therefore, it's Edward Enigma. It's like, that's a fucking stupid fucking riddle that, again, has nothing to do with the answers of the individual riddles. And it's like you didn't even you didn't do the joke because if you read that and you had Adam West write, write like read it out with the right intonation that could be like a decently funny little bit if you like set it up properly, but you then you also don't get like the the twist out of it from the riddle. It's like what is this wet fart of a fucking scene you're putting in your movie that is like what you're transitioning into the climax? It was so fucking bad. I hate it. I hate that fucking moment. It's so bad because like it's too it's really too convoluted to be a Batman 66 joke because like it's too many steps. But I could imagine if you had Adam West and Burt Ward do that, it would be funny. Yeah, I mean, specifically, it's like the way it feels like the way it's written is supposed to be like Batman 66, right? Like the Mr. E mystery, right? That's that like cadence is what they're going for. But you're right. Like the actual thing is too 
like weirdly complicated with like the numbers in the individual clues and stuff like don't add up yeah. to a satisfying joke but let's just say it, it is a satisfying joke if adam west and burt ward read it it's good the problem here is that they have Val Kilmer do it utterly straight-faced. Yeah. I do think in that scene, Alfred is kind of going for it. Like, Michael Goh has enough of, like, a twinkle in his eye and some humor in his voice that I could... If you had Val Kilmer in more of a silly mode, I could laugh at that scene. The problem is, the other thing, though, is that you have to have every riddle do that. Because if you only have the last riddle be your silly, funny 66 joke, it's weird and out of place. It It's an all-or-nothing proposition, right? Yeah. So... So because they've never done it, you're not conditioned to think this will be the funny riddle. They do a funny riddle, but they don't deliver it comedically. They just do it like they're reading fucking a, a Chinese food menu to each other. And then they go. It's And this is following a scene where Batman had like a nom, like trauma fucking flashback to his parents getting murdered in front of him. Yes. Right? So it's like, even if it was trying to be funny, it's like tonally, it's juxtaposed immediately with the scene <laughs> where he gets shot in the fucking head like two seconds before this happens. Like, it's absurd. Yeah, there's a reason why Adam West's Batman does not have constant PTSD flashbacks <laughs> to the death of his parents. Yeah, it's just... Oh my god, this fucking movie is so bad. Okay, we complained about Riddler. We complained about Two Face and all of that shit. I well, one thing I wanted to go back to Sean on Two Face. What do you think of the makeup? His weird purple, just like he just half of his face is purple, and it just it is face paint. It's just transparently like like the way the Joker is face paint. It's just face paint. It's not at all trying to do any like it looks like. Joker or Two-Face sort of in the animated series but the animated series is animated so that's fine it's stylized but like there's no attempt at any verisimilitude I don't need it to look like Two-Face in the Chris Nolan movie which goes like hyper crazy real with it but like they don't choose anything so yeah I agree that like I'm not a big fan of the way the makeup works and I think like a bigger problem is the way that they light scenes with Two-Face and Riddler is that Two-Face is just lit, lit in red and pink the whole time because that's what the character's like aesthetic is is like oh the one half of him is pink and with riddler it's in green but the problem is if you have a character that is dressed mostly in pink and every time you see him he's lit with pink there's no contrast in the fucking image so it's like it's almost hard to make out what the two-faced side of him is supposed to look like because it's always bathed in pink light in the same way with the riddler as soon as the riddler puts on his green costume and he's standing in a green lit scene it's like you, there's no contrast in the visual image of the character. And so it's like I appreciate you're going for this like stylized, ridiculous, like neon lighting thing. But you need to do lighting that complements the character, not the same lighting on the way the character looks. Because it's like if you put fucking Sonic the Hedgehog in a scene that's all fucking blue, he's just like a, two floating tan circles, right? Like it's like the, when the character is mostly one uniform color, you need to pick lighting that contrasts the color, not the same lighting as what the character is. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about this for a second, Sean, because it's a rant I have. Mm -hmm. Off the top of my head, I can't tell you an uglier Hollywood movie than yeah, Batman Forever. It's pretty bad. It is one of the ugliest movies. It is just bad on the level of cinematography. Like, if you want to know, what does bad cinematography look like, Jonathan? Well, here's a clue. If every prop and costume in the movie looks like it was made out of plaster and cardboard for five cents at the dollar store, then the cinematography is bad. Because the trick about Hollywood is everything you're looking at is, in fact, fake. They don't really make these things. When people are wearing chain mail 
in The Lord of the Rings, they didn't actually make real metal chainmail. It is a kind of plaster sort of thing that they've done. It's fake. But then you get a good DP like Andrew Lesney and a good director like Peter Jackson, and you get good lighting technicians and all of that stuff, and you light it and you shoot it and you frame it in such a way that it looks real and adds verisimilitude, and that is the art of cinematography in part. There is also the idea of doing artistic framing and expressing things psychologically through the image, but your sort of basic job is to make things that don't really look that good in real life look good. And Batman Forever didn't get that memo. Joel Schumacher through his entire career didn't get that memo because all of his movies have this problem where they are grotesquely overlit, like way beyond your normal like Hollywood three-point lighting. Hollywood likes having flat, even lighting. It's way more, way worse than that because it's these big garish lights. They're like bright neon pink and green and just ugly colors that just bathe the image Everything is washed out. There's no sense of contrast or interplay between like colors and shades and tones. There's no shadows. There's nothing interesting like that. The framing is awful. It's either like really simplistic close-ups and, and most of it is close-ups. Like one of the worst shot scenes in the movie is at the end when Batman confronts the Riddler and he has his thing about like his riddle about being a bat. That shot doesn't have an establishing shot until he throws the Batarang. Yeah. There is no establishing shot. Like, you don't know the geography because they cut from close-up to Batman, close-up to Joker, or <laughs> Riddler, close-up to Two-Face, close-up to Meridian in the, like, thing, and then close-up to Robin. But they don't show you how any of those are interrelated because they're just going close-up, close-up, close-up. They've just introduced a new bat suit that Batman has. But they never, you almost never see it because you just stay in close-up on Batman for that entire scene. There's a bunch of stuff like that in the movie. It has this egregious use of Dutch angles where I think it has no real... There, there's that great Roger Ebert line about Battlefield Earth that um, he says, The director of this movie uses Dutch angles because he's heard other directors do that and thought he maybe should too. And that's sort of how I think about it in this movie. Is like the mm -hmm. Dutch angles are borrowed from Batman 66. But Batman 66, the movie and the TV series, has this editorial pattern where it is sort of like rigidly cut to look like comic book panels. And so you and so for one, the camera doesn't usually move in the space. And so you don't move into Dutch angles. You just have one. And then you cut usually to an opposite Dutch angle. And you're trying to make it sort of feel like you're reading a stylized comic book. In this movie, it's just... Shots have Dutch angles sometimes, and a lot of shots, when they do a camera move, they move into a Dutch angle, but there's nothing expressed with it. It it often makes the sets look wrong because they frame the sets in such a way where you can like see the boundaries and it just looks bad, um, and everything looks fake and cheap. This movie cost $100 million. It looks like it cost $1 or $2 million. It is one of the cheapest, shittiest-looking movies, and that is just bad direction because you don't spend this much money and end up with something this fucking cheap looking through good direction. That's impossible. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's not like they were paying craft services so much that they didn't have money left over for the props, but for some reason, Riddler's like TV antenna thing he makes looks like, like a fucking popcorn machine you'd go buy at the dollar store. Uh -huh. If that, um, it's awful. How did this, like... I said this about Batman Returns that I was I'm amazed Batman Returns exists in the Hollywood studio system. But I'm amazed for good reasons, like cuz that movie is so out there. I am equally amazed that Batman Forever like how does this make it through the system being this just fundamentally inept as a piece of filmmaking? Yeah, for me the scene because this is pretty early, the scene that like really highlighted this. There's some stuff with like the like hanging vault in the opening action scene that's like ooh oh ooh oh man you're like some of that like the green screen stuff there is just like very rough looking. 
but particularly this is because this is such a like basic scene you have seen a million times in a million movies and it always looks fine and here you're like this looks terrible is uh batman and dr meridian on the rooftop where the fucking uh bat signal is and they're just having a conversation and i have never seen anything that looks more like a fucking set than that set when they're supposed to be on a rooftop outside like i've watched fucking episodes of doctor who set in the 60s that more convincingly made a set look like you're outside than this 100 million dollar movie when you're standing on a rooftop it's just nothing about it looked like you're like they did nothing to make it look like these are actually people standing on a rooftop it looked like you know i've been teaching doing macbeth with my 10 honors kids and we've been watching some like staged tv productions that aren't really like it's not like a live theater performance that's been filmed it's something that's like here we get a decent looking cast the bbc does it sometimes and we'll like have a good cast and we'll do like something that's like somewhere between a film to tv or film stage performance and a like tv made for a movie kind of version of it where you can see how fakey the sets and everything are because it's not going for a movie look and this looks like one of those like it's just so cheap and shoddy looking but it's not doing anything that is like it's important to know it's not doing something that feels like it's expressing something through that it's not like and this feels like you're entering like a world that is supposed to be like theatrical or something there are some things that do that and it works here it feels like it's just like kind of incompetence that is trying to and wants it to look like these are people standing on a rooftop and not two people in ridiculous costumes standing in a like set in a back lot somewhere there but at the end of the day, I'm just looking at it like this like looks like a soundstage to me and I can't look at it as anything else. Like it is totally broken, like some of the most like basic elements of what you need a film to accomplish to like establish some sort of like suspension of disbelief. I mean, it looks like a porno. That's yeah. uh, like I, I want to keep coming back to this and not to be like gross or salacious or anything, but just like this is something that is also like academically studied is like you know the aesthetics of like porn versus cinema because it's an interesting topic and like one of the things about porn is that you you have it lit like very bright and very evenly and and it's very flat looking and ugly but the point is that you're not caring about like composition or lighting the point of a porno is to get people off and so you just want bodies lit in space so you can like see every crevice and whatever you want to you know get off to and and if you have like your dialogue scene and it's like very obviously a set or it's very obviously someone's house or something nobody cares because they're skipping through that or not paying attention because that's not what it exists for. And that's what Batman Forever looks like in those scenes is it's just made with the absolute like minimum, not even the minimum, it doesn't even meet meet the minimum of like something that is actually cinematic that you would want to sit down and watch. And even worse is like the second half of the movie really gets into this is all the stuff with just like the garish neon lighting and like, there's a scene where Robin takes the Batmobile out and he's in the back alley that is also just very clearly a soundstage and you've got all the dudes in like the glow-in-the-dark face paint and it's just something about the kinds of lights and filters Schumacher uses are so fucking ugly. And I think this is about the end too with like Joker's green ass lair where it just, it literally like makes me feel a little queasy looking at it and Batman and Robin also has this problem uh, of just like, it's just such an ugly looking movie. Yeah, like that that scene with Robin driving out, like that's a really good example of like it legitimately just looks like you did some sort of like filmed version of some like updated version of West Side Story. Like that's just what it looks like. It doesn't look like a movie, um, but it's not but it's not trying to be a musical, right? It's the, it's it is this weird thing where 
if it was leaning into that and the rest of the movie was like designed to have that aesthetic, I think it would actually be kind of good because it knows how to hit that aesthetic. Um, but that's just not what the movie's going for at any point and any other register. So it's it's just this bizarre feeling of like it's this thing where it's like I feel like there are some people who wouldn't be able to if they tried make it look like this in terms of trying to like film a staged performance and stuff like that and make it feel so much like you are sitting in the audience watching a fucking like play in front of you. Um, and yet this is not at all the effect you're trying to go for. And so it, it yeah it just it makes you almost feel like uncomfortable watching it um, because of how much it feels like it is incapable of like establishing like the reality the film it needs to establish for its story to work it's really a lighting issue more than anything like uh and this is true of all of schumacher's movies if you look at his 2004 phantom of the opera movie there's a great example of this when they do the music of the night scene which is when the phantom takes christine back to his lair and that lair is like like that movie had good sets and like production design and stuff that like was very lavish but then what Joel Schumacher does is he comes in and there are a million fucking candles. And I mean it, like a fucking million. There's just mm -hmm. candles everywhere on every surface of that set. And so it is as bright and evenly lit as it could possibly be. And just like light everywhere. And it washes out the image. There's no contrast. It's a song about the fucking night. And they have it like heavily lit. So like it doesn't get that. And like it makes this set look cheap and shitty and gross and like that is just a constant effect in this movie as well and it will be in batman and robin too so it's like i just i just i can't believe this guy kept getting work on like big hollywood studio movies just the lighting is so bad oh my god should we talk about robin yeah i was gonna say there's one major character we haven't brought up um and it's it's dick grayson himself okay Mm -hmm. Brownie points for trying, I guess, in the sense that this, this is still the only, this and the next one are the only live action Batman movies that have tried to bring in the Bat family. I think you're forgetting uh, Dark Knight Rises. That has a man named Robin in it. That did not count. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, Sean. It's really bad. I Yeah. Chris O'Donnell, I will say, is not as bad as I remembered. He is more just like bland and forgettable. Um, he's one of the only, like, like at least he cracks a smile in scenes with Batman, and that's nice, because Batman is just nothing in this movie. But I just feel like they fundamentally missed the purpose of Robin in a way that is, like, almost comical to me, of, like, how heavily they missed the purpose of Robin. Because the purpose of Robin is not that Batman has a kid, like, foisted on him, and then has to keep being told, take care of the kid, take care of the kid, and him going, no, 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 no. And then finally just saying yes. It's the opposite. It's Batman trying to uplift this kid. And that's how it's always been. Batman 66 gets that. This one doesn't. What the fuck? Yeah, it's a really bizarre relationship that Batman and Robin have in this. Where it feels like Batman, for no reason really, just decides to do nothing for the whole movie until he reaches the breaking point where he just literally just says, so anyways, I'm going to stop being Batman. And Robin's like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Um, and so Batman's just doing that and moping and doing nothing ever since Robin gets introduced. 
Um, and so the whole time Robin is like, we got to go out there. Like, you're supposed to help people. You're Batman. Like, we need to go stop Two-Face. And then he's, you know, then he goes the extra mile and says, like, I'm going to kill Two-Face in my family. And Batman's like, if you if you kill him, then you'll be as bad as... Then. Well, it's more like he's like, if you kill him, then the rest of your life you'll be going out there and you'll just, like, there'll be other faces because they like to use the word face a lot in this movie because of Two-Face. The other faces out there, blah, 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 which is also a Batman, you're not, your thing isn't revenge. You didn't kill the dude who killed your parents. Like, what are you even talking? Like, why are you talking well, like Well, he did this? in this continuity. <laughs> I, maybe he did. I mean, it doesn't say that. No. Well, okay. If, if you believe this is the same series as the Tim Burton movies. In Does he? The first Tim, it's supposed to be. Oh, it's in, right. It's Joker. Right. I forgot yeah, the Joker. Joker. Yeah. Right, fuck, yeah, because in my head it's it's a Joe Chill or like some random dude who kills Batman's parents. Yeah, but so but he then, didn't kill that guy. <laughs> sure, but still no. The, yeah. the, but he didn't become Batman to go kill him. That's exactly like, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That's so it's like like there's no narrative thrust there of like you'll end up like me because there it feels like it's almost a vaguely Batman Beyond esque thing of like he's like. Uh, if you do this, if you walk down the path that I walked, you'll just end up being miserable. So don't do this, kid. And I'm just going to be gruff and angry about it. Um, and But that's not the dynamic that the character has. It's like he's, he isn't out on a quest for revenge. Like, this is like kind of fundamentally not... Generally speaking, it's just not what Batman is. It's also specifically, they didn't like frame this Batman in that way. So like that side of it, of his being like, don't go out there to get revenge doesn't work. But then also the like lack of attention that batman pays to like dick grayson and trying to help him work through his traumas and stuff and instead dick grayson having to be the person that goes up to batman and repeat is like what are you doing you're supposed to be batman and batman just sort of grunting at him and giving some like vague philosophical dialogue where he says the face like the word face five times and that's it and he kind of walks away uh, it's it's bizarre. Like, I don't know why does Robin have to motivate Batman to be Batman in the Batman movie? Like, it should be Batman teaching Robin how to, like, be better. And through that, Batman himself learning how to grow, right? And it should be this, like, back and forth. Um, and they, so yeah, they fundamentally mean, missed the point there. If you wanted to do a story where, like, Batman... Because they kind of gesture at this that, like, maybe it's batman failing to save robin's family that made him sad in these scenes and if you actually went with that and did like batman feels guilty and doesn't like batman needs to get his groove back and maybe like robin inspires him to do so i could you could do that there's some give and take you could tell in a story there that's not how they do it it's just completely like robin is like let's go do something and batman is like no let's not do anything they, it's their city now robin <laughs> Like, yeah, it's like so if they weird. wanted to do what you just said, like you would have to do the anyways, I'm not going to be Batman anymore scene. That would be, have to be like the midpoint of the movie instead of right. 30 minutes from the end. At like basically, if you wanted to try to break it down to acts, what would vaguely be the beginning of the third act of the movie? Um, yeah, so that whole side of Robin just like does not function. It's like it just feels like what, the, what they're trying to do with Robin and what they're trying to do with Batman are just like completely out of sync. Um, and then the other thing that is like, I think my favorite part of Robin in this movie because of how funny it is, is like they decided probably rightly that it would be very hard to do. Here's like a 12 year old kid that like little kid Robin, like he originally is in the comics. And so they're like, well, we'll age up Robin. But they didn't decide to really modernize the rest of the Robin story. So you just have this very awkward period where it's like, he, you know, he's, they do the whole flying Grayson thing and he's with his family and his family gets killed. And then 
And then Commissioner Gordon just shows up at Wayne Manor for no reason whatsoever and is like, here's this sad 23-year-old man who is like... (laughs) Because there is no way to read Robin. And they never explicitly state Robin as being like 16 or something. He's not a juvenile. He doesn't look like a juvenile and they never state that he's a juvenile. But Sean, he just... drives a motorcycle. He exactly. has a motorcycle license. He drives to Wayne Manor with Commissioner Gordon on a motorcycle. He cannot be a juvenile. Yeah, and so it's like, here's this adult man we're just <laughs> going to give you because he's sad. It's like, why? He has no relationship to Bruce Wayne whatsoever. Like, why? where was he? his family living before? Why can't Dick Grayson stay where he was already at? Because he's an adult human being. It's <laughs> so bizarre. And it just goes utterly unexplained that it's like, anyways, here's this dude. Like, I guess he's like your ward now, even though he's like a legal adult. It's just, it's, I find it so funny that they do that scene. Well, and Gordon even has the, like, clearly the script is confused on this because Gordon has a line there about child services can't find a place for him. Yes. And then later in the movie, Batman says something about how you should go off to college. So, like, they don't have a sense of what his age is. My strong, strong suspicion is that they wrote him as 15 or 16. And if you look at who they were trying to cast, like, they wanted Leo DiCaprio. Leo DiCaprio in 1995 could have played 16. Oh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and like he was very boyish he was on like growing pains at the time as this kind of character like a teenager who didn't have a home so like that would have worked but they didn't get Leo DiCaprio they got Chris O'Donnell who was 25 when they shot this and frankly looks older like Chris O'Donnell looks like a 30 year old man he does not look like a boy or he is not boyish as an actor like Mm. there's nothing boyish about him you know, this is not the first time in live action we've aged up Robin either. Remember, in Batman 66, Burt Ward is a teenager. Um, and, and Burt Ward was older. He was in his 20s and probably later 30s by the time the show ended. But he's a very boyish actor, and the writing and framing and everything framed it very explicitly. That when they would say in every episode, it was his youthful Ward. But also you would have, like, he would be going to school and he would be doing his homework and Batman or Bruce Wayne would be helping him with his homework and all of that. So like they took pains to make it clear who like the age range was here. Here it, it is like they have no idea. And the effect is <laughs> here, Batman, have a large adult man to hang out at your manor. Like what the hell are you doing? It's so funny because it's just it makes no sense at all. Um, and it's like, and what I said in my tweet is that, like, I had just utterly forgotten that his whole look is a 23-year-old dude who works behind the counter at Blockbuster because he's got the one fucking <laughs> earring, right? Yep. And he's got, like, the really short-cut hair. And it's just, it is just like, here's Gary from the Blockbuster, like, put him up for a month, Batman. <laughs> like, it's just, I I just don't understand what they were going for. Um, or, like, if they, if they were, original intent was to have him be, like, a teenager, which is, like, a totally, like, valid and probably like the smart thing to do with robin in a more modern context rather than making him like a little boy um if that's what their original intention was they really needed to like cut out a couple of lines there and like come up with some sort of justification once you actually cast the character and then like you said there are things about him like him driving a motorcycle that just like materially in the movie mark him as being an adult um and yeah it's it's but I mean, it's, it's Chris O'Donnell is miscast. Like, that's part of it, is he's just miscast. He's too old, and he doesn't look the part. He's wrong for it. 
I mean, it's, if you if you, I don't think you could I don't think it's impossible to do. Here is like an adult man who becomes like Robin or whatever. Like I think you can do that. You just have to change the character a lot. Um, but that's not. Yeah. But my point is, like I read, like they had Leo DiCaprio. They were looking mm-hmm. at um, they were looking at young Ewan McGregor. They were looking at uh, Christian Bale, who at this time would have looked the part. Like they were they were auditioning actors who would have been right for the part they wrote. And then they cast someone who was wrong for the part they yeah. wrote. That's miscasting. <laughs> like, if you have to rewrite the entire thing because you cast someone else, but then you don't do the rewriting, you've miscasted. So they miscast Robin. Like, dictionary definition of that. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that's like, if they if it was something they did intentionally, I think you could do it. As a, And that's like my bid for, I just really want them to fucking do Robin in these fucking movies yes. at some point. So it's like, hey, if you if the rule is like, it has to be an adult person, you could fucking write that. But you have to write it. Yes, they didn't. They didn't write shit. They also make a joke about Nightwing. Uh, that's bad and dumb. Mm-hmm. I do. I do think one of the only moments in this entire movie that works emotionally is when Alfred is talking to Robin in his bedroom, and Robin tells the story of why he's called Robin, and and Alfred has this line about like you know broken wings will heal, Robin will fly again. And it's a lovely little moment because I feel like Joel Schumacher gets the fuck out of his way long enough to just let Michael go play it, and Michael Go is that good. Yeah. And and that's the only moment in this movie that works for me. Yeah, I, I basically agree. Um, another thing, I, I, I like his original flying Grayson costume, and then at the yeah. end of the movie he comes in with, like, there, here's, like, the cool 90s Robin costume, and it looks fucking terrible. It's like, please, please have him wear the goofy, like, flying trapeze outfit. It looks so much better. Just do the, like, earnest, bright colors. It's just like, please, it, it was it was a much better look than your, like, shitty fucking X-Men 2000-ass-looking uh, superhero costumes. Yeah. It doesn't have the nipples on it yet. We'll get there next time. Um, but yes. So, okay, what else to talk about with this shit pile of a movie? I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier that the story in this movie is just fucked. And part of that is just, like, it, it kind of doesn't have a story. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of stories. It has the thing about Batman and Chase Meridian. It has Two-Face wanting to kill Batman. It has Riddler wanting to do something with brainwaves, which they never they never pay off on. There's no, like, ticking clock at the end. You would think that if this movie is about Riddler building like a giant antenna where he can control the minds of everyone on Earth, that the climax might be motivated by there being some kind of ticking clock situation where Batman has to go to the island where Riddler is and do something to like dismantle the big like antenna thing so that it stops something and there's like a a deadline structure to it. But instead he just kidnaps the woman and that's the deadline of the movie. Um, it, it's just broken. Like it's it. This movie feels longer than it is and it just mm-hmm. goes on and on because it's sort of like a collection of scenes it's at no point a coherent, like, story. Yeah, and like you said, like, a lot of that comes down to the, like, choice to do Riddler and Two-Face and not really commit to one of them being the main villain, meaning that you're just kind of, like, redoing beats all the time. Robin is, like, feels largely disconnected from... Like, once at the midpoint of the movie where they start really investing in Riddler, all of a sudden the Robin stuff feels like it's sort of, like, tacked on, whereas the Riddler stuff felt tacked on before. And so the movie shifting focus without those things being tied together... You're right. Like, it just feels like the movie is two hours long. It feels way longer than that when you're, especially when you yeah. get to the end. Um, the, everything about the whole, like, climax structure of this movie is utterly bizarre. I don't understand anything of what it's doing. I don't understand any of the, like, the character motivation. Like you said, there's no ticking clock. Um, and that, I think a lot of that comes down to, I just really 
want to talk about that fucking scene where Batman just says, I'm not going to be Batman anymore because it is the most I've laughed at a movie in a long time. So the setup for this sequence um, is Batman goes to uh, Dr. Chase's uh, house because she fucking tells Batman, like, basically, come to my place at midnight and we'll fuck. Um, it is, like, the most direct, like, <laughs> sexual invitation I've ever seen in a superhero movie. It's like, it's like, okay, lady. And then it cuts to her. And then, like, Batman does some shit. It cuts to her on her bed in, like, negligee. Um, and then Batman shows up at the window. They kiss. And then in the middle of her them kissing, she delivers this very like is like, the weakest Nicole Kidman scene because it's they like have to force her to defy her one character trait, which is that she wants to fuck Batman. She's like, you know what? I this is the thing I wanted the whole movie, and yet now I don't want to because I, I want to have sex with somebody else, um, basically. And it's like, and that somebody else is Bruce Wayne. And so then Batman turns around and smiles into the camera, um, and then he leaves. <laughs> Then it cuts to a, like, brief Two-Face uh, Riddler scene, where I think that's the scene where they figure out that Bruce Wayne is Batman because they stole his brain waves, whatever. And then it goes from that scene and cuts directly to Batman saying, and this is literally the line, it is like a wide shot of him and Robin in the Batcave, and you just cut to Batman in the middle of speaking saying, so, from this day on, Batman is no more. And when he said that, I just paused the movie and was like, what... Do you mean you can't just cut to in the middle of a sentence starting with a fucking conjunction? So from this day on, Batman is no more like it is the most inexplicable fucking turn. Nothing explains and he never really justifies why he's decided not to be Batman. You just have to assume by juxtaposition that it's because he's Bruce Wayne is going to be in a relationship with dr chase but that is also like diluted so much by putting the fucking two-face and riddler scene in the middle that it no longer feels like that it no longer feels like you know if you went from and it would be fucking goofy as shit if you went from the shot of him smiling into the camera to him cutting cutting to robin and him saying so from this day on batman is no more it's super goofy but it delivers the point of what they're saying, right? That it's like, because now he's going to be in a relationship with her as Bruce Wayne, he no longer needs Batman. Why that means he no longer needs Batman? What has happened to his guilt from the death of his parents? What has happened to his need to defend Gotham from crime? I don't know. But at least if you put those scenes directly juxtaposed, it would make that argument. Um... And then he goes on to like have like a bunch of random pieces of dialogue. Um, I couldn't find the full scene because it didn't get quoted, even though this is some of the worst dialogue. But I did in my tweet in my tweet quote a couple of other lines where he then later says, after Robin's just like, "What are you even talking about? Shut the fuck up, Batman." He then has this whole thing that he ends with, like, "There are lots of I've I've spent my whole life protecting the innocent and the and like the faceless innocents and blah 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 blah." blah. And then he says, "Well, the innocent aren't faceless anymore." I'm like. What does that mean? What is that? I mean, I assume that he's talking about, well, now I have a relationship with a person. So, like, like she is innocent and now she's not faceless. It's this one person. But it's also, like, you're talking about an entire city that you've, like, sworn to protect. What the fuck are you even talking about? And then later on when he's, like, Robin is very insistent. Like, what are you doing? We have to go get Two-Face. Like, you have to help me. It's almost this, like, it gets so far that it feels like this, like, this Hamlet-esque we have just removed motivation from the main character as like a, like a narrative experiment. And you're just pushing so hard on why? 
Like, why are you doing this? Your whole function as a character, Batman, is to, like, protect people and help me. It's like, you're supposed to be guiding me because I'm Robin in a Batman movie. What are you doing? Like, it gets, like, up to the point of feeling like it's breaking the fourth wall with how far they're pushing Batman out of character. And then he just says, you're going to have to let this go. I'm like... No, no, we don't. Because what are you talking about? Why have you decided to stop being Batman? And then, and then, like three minutes after this is when fucking Two Face and Riddler show up at his face at his place and shoot him in the head, and he has his trauma about he has like the vision about his parents. It's like this is fucking ridiculous. It would be like if in Spider Man Two, they just decided like 30 minutes from the end of the movie that that would be the point where Spider Man would decide to stop being Spider Man rather than like at the beginning of the second act of the film. Well, I was going to make this this point, Sean. Spider-Man 2 is an interesting comparison because they're very careful to dole out the narrative that when Spider-Man, when Peter chooses to stop being Spider-Man, he doesn't think Doc Ock is out there anymore. Uh -huh. He thinks he's defeated him. So, like, and Doc Ock is working in the background. We know that, but Peter doesn't. Like, so there is a, they are, they are, they are moving the narrative. So, like, it is not an overtly irresponsible thing that Peter is doing. There is not some big, like, Sword of Damocles hanging over the city when Peter chooses to stop being Spider-Man. And so you can roll with it and not just roll with it, but you're very invested in it. In this, it is literally, they are taking over the world. And he's just like, kid, you're going to have to live with it. Like, it's their city now. Nothing I can do. I'm done. And it's like, of all the times for Batman to decide not to be Batman anymore, it would be like if in fucking The Dark Knight Rises... Instead of, like, Bruce Wayne, like, and Dark Knight Rises has problems, but at least when Bruce Wayne is thrown in the pit and is told that there's a nuke in Gotham, he gets out of the pit and goes and fights it instead of, like, staying in the pit and, like, the doctor going, don't you want to get out of this pit and save Gotham? And he's like, Doc, we got to live with it. Says, well, Doc, the innocent aren't faceless anymore. He's like, what, what are you even talking about? <sighs> oh, my God. It sounds like he's quoting song lyrics. I mean... Yes. Like, bad 90s emo. Oh, God. That's so stupid. Okay. There's a scene I want to talk about, Sean. Okay. I want to go back to Robin's origin story, because I have two points about it. I have a couple points about this. So, um, first off, like you said, like, Robin kind of comes out of nowhere in the middle of the movie, and then the movie is about Robin for a while. That's a huge structural problem in this movie that we haven't talked about. Like, that needs to be the first scene of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, the opening of the movie should be Harvey Dent killing dick grayson's parents and then like dick grayson is a character for the whole movie and intrinsically tied to bruce wayne's like motivations like that's what it has to be like this movie either should have opened with a two-face origin or it should have opened with like two-face is already two-face but then his first big attack is against the circus and and you have the robin scene like you cannot do that at like the end of act one it's ridiculous yeah second second they don't give dick grayson a line of dialogue until after his family is dead that is just, like, such a choice to, like, we're not going to introduce him as a character or his life or anything. We're not going to try to get you to, like, care about this kid and, like, see that, like, like have a line where his dad, like, ruffles his hair. Which would be weird because he's a 30-year-old man. But, like, something like, you know, like, oh, son, I love you. And it's like, I love you too, dad. We're going to be doing this forever. They don't do any of, like, that basic, like, screenwriting 101. And then they just kill the family and then Dick finally has a line when he arrives at Wayne Manor for some reason. And... That scene has, I think, the funniest moment in the entire movie, which is where Harvey Dent is, like, demanding that Batman come out. And so Bruce Wayne is, like, looking around, like, what do I do? What do I do? And then everyone's, like, yelling and shouting, and he stands up and goes, Harvey, I'm Batman! But, like, no one can hear him, and he kind of deflates and goes, 
oh fuck and like runs away that is such a funny scene it's not intended to be but it is so fucking funny yeah no that's that that scene is a really good example of where this, this movie cannot balance its two tones because that is also because that is a scene where dick grayson's parents like brutally die from falling from a great yes. height and crush themselves on the ground and also while that is happening you're intercutting intercutting with dick grayson fucking like trying to grab this giant like cartoon bomb and throw it over this hatch and so it's like it is like you know you're intercutting the brutal death of this character's parents with the scene from batman 66 where batman's like some days you just can't get rid of a bomb it is that level of like cartoonish looking <laughs> giant bomb prop prop and it's like you can't do both these things at the same time either it should be like this is a like deadly looking weapon that dick grayson is trying to like deal with while everything else is happening or the whole thing has to be goofy and his parents don't get killed because you know you don't want it to be that grim now I'm imagining a version of Batman 66 where Batman, as Adam West, is running around with the bomb and it's intercutting with Burt Ward watching his parents get murdered. Yeah. That's basically what this movie does. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I do like that Like Batman and Robin's only character dynamic is that Batman keeps telling Robin, don't seek revenge, don't seek revenge, don't kill people. And the movie <laughs> does end with Batman brutally murdering Two-Face. It's so funny. It's so funny that the last shot of Robin in this movie is him watching as Two-Face plunges to him his death because of something that Batman did. It's like yeah. I just love I just love that. I love that Batman's like, you just you can't go around killing people, Robin, because if you kill one person, what's to stop you from killing the next person? Blah 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 blah. And then Batman kills him. Um like he horribly maims Riddler and then he fucking like causes Two Face to plunge to his fucking death. And it's like Robin is just left basically with because it's not a like they took the moral high ground and that's how they resolved the revenge nor is it Robin like accomplishes his revenge they took the like unseen unheard of middle path which is like revenge blue balls where he's like up to the point of getting revenge and then revenge is taken from him by Batman it's fucking revenge cuckolding basically it's like <laughs> what the fuck is this like that's not a way to revolve resolve a revenge plot either you get the revenge and they suffer the consequence of it or they learn how to like of like resolve his character tension without him having to take the step of taking revenge. There shouldn't be a middle path which is somebody else <laughs> takes revenge in your stead and everything is fine. Like that's such a bizarre way to resolve that fucking theme. It'd be great if if Hamlet ended with Hamlet going like, "Yeah, I can't kill you, Claudius." Here, Horatio, you do it. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what it is. Horatio, yeah, just goes and fucking murders the king. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then and then Horatio is the one who gets poisoned and Hamlet's like that was a real nice thing you did for me anyway I'm gonna go run this kingdom yeah. uh, I got a lot you know I got I got a lot of money now I'm good um, that'd be a very different version of Hamlet <sighs> yeah hey, I think Hamlet and Batman Forever if you go on like the 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 range of like quality of works of art they are roughly on opposite poles um, yes. in human history <laughs> yeah this is a terrible movie, Sean. This is an F. This is an F. Uh, this is about at the bottom of the barrel. I, I, it is not the absolute most infuriating superhero movie. I would put that on like maybe Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, Batman v Superman is tough because Batman v Superman, like in comparison to this, is like a brilliantly directed movie. It's not brilliantly directed, but Zack Snyder is a much better filmmaker than Joel Schumacher. Mm -hmm. Um, but that movie is also infuriating. Uh, X-Men Origins. This is like in the X-Men Origins Wolverine or um yeah like one of those like like that range of terrible superhero movie it's it's very bad yeah um i want to highlight a couple of other moments of just like terrible dialogue okay. because i do think like of all the problems of the movie 
the dialogue is the thing that like hurt me the most because that it's just like it's constant it's awful it's so on the nose when it tries to be funny it's painfully unfunny when it tries to be dramatic it is just them trying to state themes that they can't dramatize to you so here's one of the lines that made me just really truly groan my fucking like heart out of my throat um is <laughs> it's when bruce wayne shows up at, at dr meridian's uh office and there's that whole terrible he like hears her like boxing in the thing and he like runs through the door and it's like what this is like a scene from a different movie but then they start talking and he hands her like the riddle or whatever that he got from the riddler and she says my opinion is the letter writer is a total wacko wacko that a technical term patient may suffer from obsessional syndrome with potential homicidal tendencies does that work better for you so what you're saying is this guy is a total wacko and I just about threw my fucking remote through the goddamn TV when it's like <laughs> this is just I see where like you like somebody told you what a joke was once and you wrote this line through it, but like someone who has never actually experienced a joke in earnest, that's how you get to that fucking line of dialogue. Yep. Um, and then I, the other one I want to highlight is this is the last one I did in my tweet thread because it is just it is the most on the nose dialogue for a theme that the movie really didn't have much of. But Bruce's, like, big kiss-off line to Riddler at the end of the, the movie where it's like he's stopped Riddler and Riddler's like, oh, how come I can't kill you? Blah, 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 blah. And then Batman says, you see, I'm both Batman and Bruce Wayne. Not because I have to be. Now, because I choose to be. And <laughs> what it's, does that mean? Yeah, it's, like, so awkwardly put together. And it's also just the most... Like, that's like you wrote on the back of a napkin, like, what one of the major themes you wanted to tackle when you were, like, in the previous version of the script. Um, and it's like, oh, we want to do this whole duality of Batman identity thing. And, and this is what we want one of the main themes to be, is that he, he has to resolve it, and now he, he chooses to be Batman and Bruce Wayne. But that's not what the movie is about. And so it is both, like, a clunky piece of dialogue that is just, like, kicking you in the teeth with what the themes of the movie are supposed to be. But then also the movie doesn't actually do these themes. Um, and so it is, like, this double whammy of just really horrible, horrible fucking movie writing. Uh, Kiva Goldsman, man, uh, uh, he would uh, six years from this movie win an Oscar for A Beautiful Mind. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason we shouldn't take the Oscars seriously. Who boy. All right. Anything else we should say about Batman Forever before we start to wrap it up? It's just not good. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And. Um, we got one more of these to go with Batman and Robin, which, you know, has the future governor of California in it. Um, and then after that, we are going to be on a roll because then we have Return of the Joker and Batman Begins and The Dark Knight and Under the Red Hood. We're going to have a great time, but we do have to do one more Joel Schumacher movie um, as penance for our just our sins in general, I think, Sean. You know, I got that fucking 4K Blu-ray, so if nothing else, like at least I get that out of it. 